So hi, welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Hope everyone enjoyed the Oscars a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it was a great ceremony. Uh, Jamie and I, we watched it live together, discussing through the winners and everything. Um, we'll go on to that in a bit of the roundup in a couple of minutes. Good thing, we're joined by Tom today. Um, he's probably the biggest Blade Runner fan I know, for sure. Um, he kindly gave us the Sound of Meta review last week. And from that, we'll be discussing Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 with him, as well as some fun stuff in the middle, as usual. Oh yeah, that middle section never fails to, let's say, disappoint, like, possibly amaze, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, just in regard of the structure, um, because Tom loves both films so much, we've left pretty much everything down to him to see what exciting things he has. Um, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure, though. No pressure at all. <laughs> I've rewatched both. Jamie's now watched both. So, yep, yeah. today, so if they're not fresh in my mind, something's wrong. I just sort of <laughs> replay them in my mind. <laughs> Preparation. You just close your eyes and the film just starts playing. It does, it does. <laughs> the Vangelis starts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And before we get on to that, though, we're going to discuss Nomadland and a bit of more Promising Young Woman now that Tom's seen them. <laughs> yeah, we can't actually get enough of Promising Young Woman, so we're interested to hear his thoughts on that. So oh, yeah. Nomadland came out on Disney Plus two Fridays ago, one Friday ago. Um, we think it both watched it on that day. Last Friday, <laughs> actually, yeah. Yeah, true. We both watched it on that day, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was really interesting, purely on the basis that without these sorts of films, we'd never really hear about these stories. Hmm. I didn't know what to get, like what to expect going into it as well, because it was one of those where I literally knew nothing about it other than Nomadland was its name and it had Francis McDormand. Yeah, that was yeah, pretty much all I knew going into it. I feel like it's one of those films where lots of people kind of, well, at least in my case, I'd heard about it quite a long time ago, and I'd heard that Chloe Zhao was directing. And so me being the simple-minded man that I am, I'm just like, oh, she's directing Eternals, a new Marvel superhero film coming later. I guess I'll watch it. Oh, yeah. it's like. And so that was my in. Yeah. Canon. Yeah. Yeah. And as Martin said when we were watching it, now that Chloe's won the Oscar for Nomadland, they can advertise the Eternals as like, absolutely and now does. with Oscar winning. Or... They would have had yeah. all that done before the Oscars happen, I bet. Yeah, they just got posters ready to go. Like, oh, yeah. They have two versions of the trailer. Yeah. Yeah. Questions. yeah, I love the film as well. It's very sort of stark and kind of, it isn't a traditionally kind of amazingly kind of visual film. It's not the cinematography isn't kind of something to write home about in a sort of showy way. It's all very understated, I think, by design. It's not meant to be like a flashy lifestyle. And so the sort of the filmmaking reflects that. It's a very kind of, it's a sort of a nuanced way to do it because it's very like, it's really subtle in basically everything that it does. There's like, yeah, it's, no, there's it's no showy like a documentary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's probably the like best way to say it. It's, it felt very grounded, very real. Um, mm. Which is good, because it's based off the uh, Jessica Bruder 2017 non-fiction book with the same name. I had no idea. Okay, <laughs> makes a lot of sense, and, yeah. Like, to the extent that um, the people that she interviewed for the book then went on to play their movie counterparts. Oh, really? Wow. Like, Linda, Linda May, one of the friends of Francis McDormand's fern, was played by Linda May. Wow, okay. Yeah. Like a lot of the cinematography is really subtle. Um, I'd say we appreciate it more that way. And, and it is getting recognition because English cinematographer did win the BAFTA. He had a really good shout for the Oscar before Mank won. So it's being recognized, but it, it's definitely done subtly. 
Oh yeah, I like that. It's because there's there's a difference between I guess on the topic of this episode, there's a difference between Blade Runner style cinematography where that's almost a focus, almost more so yeah. than story and characters themselves. That's such a focus, the idea that you can push these visual effects in certain ways, you know, through this style of filmmaking. But um, the fact that you can get this cinematography uh, award nomination through something so subtle is, uh, I think it shows that these kind of, you know, I, I don't love or I'm, I'm not loyal to like these awards kind of people or anything, but uh, I think it shows that they actually consider a diverse range of kind of approaches, which is nice. I guess it also sort of helps that the scenery of the area was, it was really nice looking. Oh yeah, very... Um, Big barren wastelands and all the sort of mountainous, sort of interesting stuff far from the background. So you've got these like nice. And they just give the occasional shot of just the the horizon. Mm-hmm. I found them yeah, like good. talking directly about that. Going on from that, the editing when she's either on the road or just scenes where there isn't dialogue or interactions between characters. I found there was so many sort of cuts every like couple of seconds showing different things. Yeah, you'd mentioned that previously, and I was, I was interesting. I'll have to rewatch that to actually sort of try and catch up on that. I'm not sure if that's kind of to maintain a sense of rhythm in those scenes that could otherwise be quite generic, because I think traveling scenes in most films are so boring. Unless there's some amazing landscapes, traveling scenes are normally really boring. How many times have we seen like a really bored character in a car with like their hand on their face or just staring out the window? Mm. And, and then so the occasional often. time it will be having them drink a cup of coffee from Starbucks or something. But not Starbucks because branding. <laughs> Some nondescript coffee being drunk. Yep, just to intersperse the boring driving. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I'll have to I'll have to try and sort of notice that if I can if I watch it again. The uh, the three second rule that Martin <laughs> shut out. Um, also, it's not as emotional as I thought it would be. Mm, yeah, agree. it's sort of just character study again, but yeah, in in, in like a flashy sense, it's it's sort of like a sad existence and a sad sort of state of affairs that's led to that whole situation that these people have to live in but it's so it's like emotional in that sense but i i agree it isn't like it it doesn't have some traditional oscar winning kind of scene where some actor cries their eyes out and it's like oh what a good performance and then or like a joker where it's obviously like giving it his all in these scenes and it's amazing to watch it's really understated again i think that's the whole theme it's very kind of yeah it sort of links everything together the fact that everything's very subtle it is just pretty much real life on in film. Yeah, really good. I went into it knowing very little apart from that Frances McDormand was playing very sort of toned down performance to what we've seen her in before, like three billboards. And this sort of clips and the trailer I'd seen, for me it came across as like a tearjerker. Apart from the one scene towards the end where a friend does pass away and they all stand up and they throw a rock onto the campfire, Mm -hmm. which is quite emotional. Apart from that, there's not really too much. Mm, absolutely it's all kind of she's it's a very internalized thing like as you said three billboards and fargo you know the original fargo film she's such like a ridiculously over-the-top character with these funny accents these midwest kind of accents (laughs) i want to know how many mm. times she says yeah in fargo oh yeah yeah. (laughs) literally every she must say it like a hundred times take a shot each time she says yeah and then watch all the series of the actual show fargo and every time someone goes oh "Oh, yeah. yeah Oh, yeah. Especially Mark Freeman in Series 1. It's a fantastic show. <laughs> and then there's a, like, there's a really weird trivia fact about the film Fargo that whenever there's a scene with Frances McDormand and her husband in the film, they're either eating or in bed. Oh. There's no in between. <laughs> I did not know that. So, it's, yeah, it's really random. I don't know why anyone picked up on that. 
<laughs> it's probably like IMDb trivia where tens yeah, of people sure. find it interesting and then some people don't find it interesting. I don't know why they wouldn't yeah. find it interesting. 100% of people found it. <laughs> it's like, I think three people find my spirited interview, or not interview, review interesting. Yeah, like three out of seven at the moment or something. Uh, yeah, and I think I'm one of the three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Returning back to Nomadland, though, um, I quite like the soundtrack throughout as well. It was very subtle, just like Ooh, piano. Ian Aldi, yeah. Mm. Especially over a swanky story in the van. Yes. When she, she like just fainted or something and then was recovering in the van. The soundtrack, that was brilliant. I'm fairly sure Einaldi did another of the scores this year. Was it for The Father or is it for... He's done two. He didn't get um, nominated for either. I think it might be The Father. Yeah, overall, everybody pretty happy with Nomadland? I was going to say, yeah, concluding thoughts. Yeah. Fantastic film. I'd say worthy win, just like Parasite last year, was something completely out of the ordinary. I think you can... It's so boringly easy to predict, I think, best picture wins nowadays. Not because any of them was necessarily bad, but because there's a certain formula that kind of allows the Academy to, to praise a certain kind of film in a very generic way. But I think Parasite and Nomadland are two completely sort of opposite ends of the spectrum, and I love them both for entirely different reasons. I mean, Parasite especially, I'm so happy that the film was able to win Best International and Best Picture nomination. I feel very strongly about how, you know, international films should be considered just alongside all the others. They shouldn't be left to their own little category. They're just as valid. Um, mm -hmm. One question very, I was going to ask. Um, Minari, I haven't seen them. Is... So, like a certain proportion of it in English, which is why it didn't get nominated for foreign language film. Did it not? Um, it's. I don't think it did. Well, it's a Korean family living in America, but I'm not. So there's American speaking, but um. It's obviously another round one, the foreign language film, and I don't even think Minari was nominated. Obviously, it was nominated for best picture. So. Oh. Um... Strange. Well, in terms of a percentage, I'm not sure what counts and what allows them to be nominated and stuff, but I mean, I can say that a lot is in Korean. Um, hmm. I loved that as well, by the way. And the uh, the uh, the actress who won the Oscar, Yeon Yu Ying, I can't butcher that. That's her name. She played uh, Sunya in the film. She's um, she was fantastic, and she was, she had some very funny interviews because she's so it's sort of she's not used to this whole Western award show system. Not at all. To <laughs> we be, love uh, her to be Brad Pitt. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That was a nice moment. Is there not a story there? Like, was it his company or something helped produce Minari? But that was the first oh. time she'd seen him. Oh, really? Okay, okay. Yeah. I think there was something because it was like, it's actually nice to meet you, Mr. Brad Pitt, or something. Oh, right. Oh, okay. She'd obviously expected him to turn up on set or something. I don't even know. Um, huh. I think it was to do with that. I was expecting it was just because he was Brad Pitt. <laughs> That's fair enough. I'd be pretty starstruck yeah. if Brad Pitt turned up. It's like, um, so Will Poulter did a movie with Brad Pitt and in an interview with Russell Howard on the Russell Howard Hour, he was just like, he just couldn't talk properly. And considering he's an actor needing to talk, he just straight couldn't talk properly. Because <laughs> Brad Pitt was there. Wasn't that? I think it was a Netflix film called War Machine. And the reason I know that is because I remember when it was renowned, when it was announced, everyone was like, well, is War Machine getting a solo film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure it was War Machine. 2017 think, yeah. movie. Mm -hmm. A War Machine solo movie with Brad Pitt and Will Poulter. <laughs> yeah. Something seems Don, wrong Don here. Cheadle, Don Cheadle not involved. Yeah. <laughs> not even attached to the project. Maybe this time he's going to be played by Cuba Gooding Jr. Yeah. 
Imagine if Terrence Howard cast him again. Yeah. By chance. We've gone wildly off topic there. But oh, yeah. It's a feat. Can we score Nomad Land? Yeah, let's do it. I gave it an um, entertainment of like three and a half or four. <laughs> it is literally just a character study, true life thing. It's not meant to be an entertainment thing. But uh, it's critical. I'd give it an eight out of ten. It was really good. And that's that's it. I'd say I enjoyed it more. You do say it's hard to enjoy, and some of the other films we've seen this year are hard to enjoy, like Pieces of a Woman or mm. to an extent Ma Rainey's. So I'd say entertainment like six and a half. Critical, I'd definitely say nine. I really want to rewatch it already. I'm done mm. with excess. I'm sort of in between the two of you. I, I'm I'm sort of at a five, middle of the road in terms of entertainment. I kind of agree that yeah, it's not one of those films that you sit down for just like you know a movie night. It's not that. It's very much a you know sort of a piece of art, I guess. Um, yeah. Hence the best picture win, well deserved. And in terms of you know, sort of artistic quality and expression and all that, yeah, I have to go eight or nine. It's it's great. Should we move on to my film of the year? And I think Jamie's film of the year, Promising Young Woman. Almost spoke definitely. about it for is it forty minutes, forty five minutes on the last pod. Four, a really long time last pod. I was going to say, listeners of episode two will be all too familiar with them. Um... <laughs> 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 if they don't know the ins and outs of Promising Young Woman by now, then. Yeah, We've where have they them. been? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts on it, Tom? Yeah, so I watched it um, yesterday, as of the time of recording. Um, I enjoyed it very <laughs> much. I enjoyed basically. Um, I agreed with everything you said about Carrie Mulligan. She is fantastic. There's sort of a. I think it was Jamie who said. I mean, you both agreed that there was. There's a certain way that she can flip a switch in in her character's head and sort of switch. I mean, that's all obviously supported by the editing and by the screenplay and everything, but the way she can sort of turn on a dime from this lovey-dovey kind of rom-com girl into this, you know, terrifying, promising young woman, I don't know, um, you know, this terrifying kind of... So almost psychopath. psychopath. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I liked it a lot, and I was very intrigued when Martin mentioned early on in your discussion in episode two about how, um, about how there was a review that said it was a cop-out, and you guys had theorized that, uh, that that was a play, on, as a play on words in some regard, so I looked it up, and it wasn't. This, this one was not too pleased with the film. She enjoyed it for what it was, for being a revenge story. Um, but she was sort of slightly upset that it didn't really handle the, or at least in the way that she, in the sort of depth that she wanted, it didn't handle the kind of, the effect of the sort of effect of these traumatic events and how it can sort of shape a, person, a, a person's future in terms of, you know, PTSD and potential like, leading to suicide and stuff. And obviously that's Carrie Mulligan, that's um, Cassie's driving force in the film. But it's... Um, it's not explored because it's all kind of told anecdotally. It's all told after the fact that we know that they were friends, but we're not really shown it. And so it's slightly harder to get behind her revenge story when we're not shown the friendship, we're only ever told about it. And I, part of me agrees, but if you frame the whole film around being a fun revenge story, then it's like not even worth thinking about because it's a really good fun revenge story. So it depends what you want out of the film, I suppose. I would have definitely been a conscious choice, though, to do it that way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it isn't something that... I don't think that they just mishandled it and they tried to do something but failed. I think it was just more about. Yeah, absolutely. And also with it being such a like fun revenge movie, getting into actual depth on controversial topics would probably a bit be a bit contrasting. Yeah. May not have worked yeah. too well. Absolutely. And sometimes yeah. flashbacks and stuff sometimes don't always pay off. Yeah, I think a character saying 
how they feel about something in the present can be a lot more compelling than having to literally see it in lots of ways. So yeah. Yeah. Like they didn't even show the video to the like that like, as an example. They didn't even show the video of what mm. happened. Yeah, I think that's really effective though. We can hear it. We can hear the video. Mm. Yeah, you can. I feel like in, in another kind of you would see the film. Yeah. When yeah. she flips on Bo Burnham and shows it to him. Yeah. I think that's really effective. I like some some of the because because I'd purposely looked up absolutely nothing about the film, I had no idea Bo Burnham was in it. So I thought, well, that's a nice cameo. <laughs> like, he was actually the co-star. <laughs> yeah. Clancy Brown was in it. Um, he's been in loads of stuff over the years. Alison Brie, just add to the list of films yeah. that I'm surprised that Alison Brie is in. Um, yeah, there's um, and also you guys mentioned Alfred Molina. You mentioned how he had two scenes, one of which was barely a scene, and he completely sold it. He was uh, kind of fantastic. Yes, yeah, uh, moment Jordan or something. You know. Yes, he leaked Very something at the minute. Yes, he's he's in dirt because he played Doc Ock in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man Two, and he's apparently confirmed that he's going to be in the upcoming Spider-Man Three. You think well, that's the, all the um, Hollywood trades have confirmed it. It's the fact that recently he said he is playing that same version of that character from the original Spider-Man Two that has got mm. people up in arms. Um, you think that's? Do you think that was his mistake, or do you think they've done yes, that for a bit of hype? Model. Of, Definitely. They might have done it for a bit of the Marvel snipers. I think are definitely uh, honing in on his forehead right now. Yeah. He was not meant to reveal that he was the same version of that original character who who died and completed his arc in that original Spider-Man too. So see how imagine comes. if they did something similar to um, Wonder Vision, where they just had the same actor but he was playing a completely different character. Yes, the puns write themselves with the name Doc Ock. Um, <laughs> Ralph Boner was the name of the. Um, was the name of the Evan Peters fake out Quicksilver character? Yeah, yeah. Um, there have definitely been those theories, but um, have to wait and see. In December. So, want to give promising young woman a score? Mm, so, I think it's almost the inverse of No Man Land. I think on entertainment value alone, I was completely engaged and I was sort of completely with it all the way as it sort of tonally shifted between you know serious drama to fun revenge story. So, I'd say probably eight for entertainment value and probably a. Uh, sort of five middle of the road in terms of expression and kind of, you know, quality of filmmaking and stuff. Because as you said, being made in 23 days, whatever it was, is an extreme, extremely, you know, impressive feat. But I think the kind of visual style suffered there is slightly generic looking in some departments. Before, like, I just want to bring up one other thing about the Oscars. I just want to vent, if that's okay. <laughs> the category that I hate most right now, or over the last few years, is Best Original Song. Because the way the eligibility for it works is if the song you have, obviously it's got to be written for the movie. It can't just be a random song. If it's either in the movie or it's the first cue in the credits and it's eligible. I think just putting it in the credits, it's so easy to get a nomination if you have a world-class singer. And we've seen it mm, this year. Yes. Like Celeste got nominated for Chicago 7. That song was great. And then the Oscar winner, uh, also in the credits for Judas and the Black Messiah. I think oh, it's, it's too easy. Like If we think about Coco and Remember Me, how integral that is to the entire film. Oh, yeah. Compared to something like Chicago 7 or Judas and the Black Messiah, where you just pop it in the credits and... If it's a good song, it garners attention, then you're going to get a nomination. That really angers me, big time. 
I think it's a waste. I think that kind of highlights the kind of fake Hollywood kind of nature of a lot of this. I feel like Alter was born. You might argue with uh, with uh, La La Land. I say some of the recent ones have been thematically sort of relevant and been good songs. Say the two, say the two kind of um, traits that really should be involved with the best original song. But um, to put it in the credits, I know it's funny, isn't it? And to be not just nominated but also to win when it's in the credits. And at that point, you're probably walking out the cinema because it's playing, unless it's a Marvel film. They were yeah. Yeah. so annoying. Or if you're watching it on a streaming platform, it finishes. You just turn it off. Yeah, absolutely. What's so the point? Crashed by the film, but then it ended up to actually win the Oscar. They're like, oh, maybe we should have used it earlier. <laughs> Literally, you could put it in the actual. Yeah. I feel like with that, the only way a credit song would be Oscar-winning worthy is if it makes you stick around to listen to it. Mm. Yes. How do we judge that? <laughs> Excellent question. It's highlighted in the film that someone like Coldplay are going to play in the credits for you. <laughs> they just have stays. a Coldplay cameo and be like, hey, hey, stick around till the end, kids. <laughs> yeah, it's like a mid-ad in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> you can see that happening in the next 10 years. That's my venting over. So, And now we get on to the meat of the episode. Mm. Ooh. I'm going to have to do them in order. Blade Runner, 8.1 out of 10 on IMDb. 1982 movie. So I guess we should preface by saying we watched the final cut, and we'll get yes. into what that means in terms of the various cuts shortly. Um, well, actually, even to preface further, I should say, I just some <laughs> thoughts about the franchise overall to kind of, you know, frame how these films differ from... Well, I'll get into it. So I think, for me, the fact that it's not one of those big temple franchises that some studio relies on every year, you know, the fact that Disney needs a new Marvel and Styles film every 18 months or, you know, six months or two months or whatever. Um, the fact that it's not one of those big things means that it's... And the fact that it doesn't like take the world by storm, you know, everyone's not talking about, oh my god, this, this, this new Blade Runner's coming out next month, and then there's a spin-off Disney Plus series and a HBO Plus <laughs> original or whatever. The fact that it's not that, I, like, I love. Because it means that the people who want to get involved with it and learn about it and enjoy it actually kind of want to, and it's not just like noise you hear on Twitter and you just sort of, like Marvel versus DC or like all the new Star Wars sucks, you know, on uh, on the social media. I think the fact that it's two films in a really contained little universe, I, I, I just really enjoy that because it's not like tribalist noise, people just saying, oh, this is better, this is better, there's no arguments, it's just kind of people enjoying it. A good fan base is what you're saying. Uh, yeah, I'd say so. I mean, obviously, you can't just characterize a fan base like that sort yeah. of, you know, overall. But yeah, no, absolutely, it is kind of like a nice feeling to be kind of Involved in, not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not involved. I've no, nothing to do with the creation of these two films. Um, to be kind of wait, you mean you don't personally know Ridley Scott? I'm afraid not. No, you're emotionally it's, involved. I'm emotionally involved. There we go. Yep. Yeah, yeah, because that's the thing. I'm kind of perfectly happy to admit that there are certain Star Wars and Marvel projects that come out every so often that I get obsessed over, and I'm definitely part of that kind of thing that ex- exacerbates that whole thing where the world gets obsessed over these, you know, these products, or whatever. But I think it's just nice to be able to have this thing that's not that. And Blade Runner definitely isn't. Um, so I'm not sure what you can Sorry, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, as like even more preface, this is even more preface than Phantom Menace or any of the Star Wars prequels where we've had the originals, <laughs> now we've got six hours of prequels, and at the start of the Phantom Menace we've got more backstory. So we've got as much preface in this as yep. they had. Uh, Tom's going to defend these 
with like his life straight up. <laughs> More or less. Yeah, in terms of like genre films, you know, beyond dramas, these are basically my favorites of all time. So I'll definitely admit now that I have a bias in the sense that I like them. So I'll support them in that sense. But I'm perfectly happy to admit their flaws. Martin and I uh, rewatched the original film quite recently. And um, I was pointing out plenty of things I don't like about it. So I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not blinded by my love for them or anything. But uh, yeah. I think... Guess initial thoughts. <clears throat> we can do that, can't we? Jamie, what do you think? Um, my only really experience with Blade Runner before watching them today was the trailer for 2049, where I thought they were going to be like action movies. Yes. But into that. Yes. They really aren't. They're more like what? Sci-fi noirs, in a sense. Yep. S. Description. Yeah. Mm. So weren't, they weren't what I was expecting, but they were still, they were still decent. Other than that, I think that's a big reason why 2049 was entirely mismarketed. I think it was sold purely based on a few shooting sequences, and so many people came to watch it and realized, oh, hang on, this is almost three hours. Oh, hang on, nothing's happened. <laughs> oh, hang on, oh, a pretentious shot of some eye opening. What is this? I'm stuck in the cinema now. See yeah. a <laughs> clickbait. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It literally is. Yeah. It's um. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I feel like it doesn't help mismarketing to such an extent. Um, particularly the second main trailer. I'm not sure if you guys know the distinction between the two trailers, but the second main trailer for 2049 just completely spoiled the film. Um, I haven't seen that. But what I would say is the tendency nowadays of films before the trailer begins, you get like a three second clip of something that's going to happen. Mm. I remember 2049 has that thing towards the end where. Like Deckard's running towards the um, Kay's car or whatever, and then Kay smashes through the wall, and then big explosion, whatever. That was like shown three seconds, and then it starts with the proper trailer. Starts to do that a lot more. Yeah, I'm not sure if you guys know the reason. Okay, go on, Jamie. I was going to say it's probably because of the whole um, skippable ads on YouTube after five seconds. Exactly. Yeah, it's so that people have to see that, even if they intend to skip the ad, they have to see that a little bit. Well, Uh, not if you do mic trick that I'm not going to. Disclose. <laughs> no. um, Magician never reveals his tricks. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, I guess on my initial thoughts, I watched this. Well, the plan was when it, 2049 came out, I was going to go to the cinema with dad, and we never went, and I regret never going. But in the build up to that, we bought the Blu ray of the final cut and we watched it. Um, dad loves it. He's seen it many times over the years. He's probably actually seen various cuts, depending on what he saw when he probably saw it in the cinema or what's been on TV mm-hmm. or whatever. The final cut's only, when was it, 2006, 2007? 2007, I think. Yeah, so it's obviously massive, 25 years on or so. Um, I remember watching it and thinking it was slow first time around. And yes. having watched it, I'm tempted to say three times, or maybe three and a half times, because I might have paused halfway through when I got tired sometime. Um, Cannot believe like, it. My thoughts have completely changed. Um, and I don't find it slow, and I find it a lot more interesting. And we can get into pacing later if we want. Yes, definitely. But over consecutive watches, I found it better and better. And I think if you come back to it, Jamie, soon, I think you may join no, <laughs> me now that I've done it. On this sort of like it's god tier in terms of films. Yeah, I was as um, as Martin and I were watching. I was pointing out the uh, infamous enhanced scene where um, Deckard is sitting in his apartment 
trying to find some little like snake tattoo on one of the replicants Zora on her neck to try and work out that she's you know connected to this strip club bar place. And he's just got oh, the, um, the zoom and enhance scene. Yeah, and it just zooms and enhances and zooms, and it's just yeah, that's an infamous one. I think it's it's kind of a bit of a sort of meme. It's a bit of a known thing that everyone's like, oh, Blade Runner, that's a boring film. That's kind of known. It's kind of like, oh, that's the boring one. That's the boring sci-fi, not like Star Wars. That's the fun one. Blade Runner's the boring right. one. I always, I also thought when I watched it first time, even the opening scene, I thought was slow and boring. That sort of yeah, no, it's... At the very start. I just didn't because obviously you get the really cool information you get at the start of both films. You know, oh, really hyped, and you're like, where's Harrison? Where is he? Mm. And then he's just not there. And you've got two guys in a really dark room. And obviously, it's an interview scene. Um, and first time around, I didn't really get that. But now I know why it's so important, and it's not. And it does lay the groundwork a bit. Yeah, the eighties was particularly eighty two when this came out. That was the sort of start of the modern action film structure that we know, where you have maybe a tiny bit of exposition or some sort of text on the screen, and then you're bound straight to some some sort of action film, uh, action mm. scene. You know, Raiders of the Lost Ark two years earlier with Harrison Ford, or Return of the Jedi the next the next year. Yeah, that's true. Actually, perfect yeah. examples of Harrison Ford action films from that time period, starting with you know. Some sort of pretty modern structure, more or less, starting with an yeah. starting with an action sequence to get you into it. And Blader is not me, Blader is not an action film. That's the thing. That sort of style is making me think of Suicide Squad as well, where they literally had the, like the all the characters' backstory just thrown in text on the screen, and then they went right. Let's get into the meat of it. Action. Let's go. Yes, I think in that case, it's more to make up for the fact that there is no characterization. <laughs> Unfortunately, true, but <laughs> it is just like, yeah, let's throw all the information on there. We've done move on. some adjectives on the screen to make you know <laughs> what kind of person each one is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so in terms of the sort of world that's introduced in this first film, I just love the fact that it's not, it isn't like, so I'm also a massive fan of Lord of the Rings, and there's a thing with Lord of the Rings where because Tolkien was a linguist and a sort of an artist before a write or before anything, he created this world that had this very structured language and it had this very structured sort of setup. And so you can then breed stories from that predefined world. Whereas a Blade Runner, you have a story in a world just coexisting and that's all you know. And you don't know any sort of external bits. There's very few clues about the wider sort of context. And we'll get into that with the, uh, the iconic final scene with uh, Rugger Howe's um, character. Monologue. Just, yeah, his monologue, just mentioning loads of things that we will never know about and we don't need to know about. And that's the sort of difference with Lord of the Rings and Blade Runner. No, not Blade Runner. We're talking about Blade Runner. <laughs> Lord of the Star Rings, Wars. Marvel, Star Wars, exactly. I think there's a, there's a tendency for the fans to kind of try to know every detail about everything that's mentioned. And I just like the fact that with Blade Runner, you have these two films, and that's it. And what you get is what you get. Um, Very true. You get a lot of more philosophical questions than mechanical. Yes. So it's like Inception towards the end where you get these philosophical questions, and it leaves you with something going away compared to some things where they're more mechanical in that you struggle to understand it or you're questioning what actually went on. Absolutely. I think in the case of Inception, though, you actually have both, in my opinion. I think most people, when they watch it, I mean, I first watched Inception when I was like about 10, because we were about 10 when it came out, and yeah. I didn't understand what was going on. I was a 10-year-old. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I feel like um, that question had both. Uh, that, that film had both. both mechanical, But I completely understand what you're saying. It's leaving you with more kind of character-based kind of thematic questions as opposed to what happened here why who yeah and they're way more interesting that way you actually yeah, go out thinking about something and it stays with mm -hmm. you and obviously 
obviously we're going to get into echoed replicant or not but that's debate has stuck around for 38 years well maybe not 38 years because the final cut changed it but it's like one of the main movie debates of all time isn't it yeah and i think it's an interesting one as opposed to did x or y happen after someone saved the day in like (laughs) was it all a dream Kind of thing, absolutely. That must be the most generic one of was it a dream? Yeah, you know, that's the inception one to be fair. (laughs) True, but that entire plot is about it being a dream. (laughs) Also true. So, we have, um, so yeah, to get into a little bit of the actual film Blade Runner 724, uh, no, it's not, it's said in 2019, the far distant future of 2019. Not sure about you guys, Mm. can't wait for flying cars and you know, perfect human now. Where are they? (laughs) <laughs> One thing me and Martin were discussing about earlier about the year was um, Rutger Hauer sadly passed away in 2019. He did. It was when the first movie set. I know. It is sort of coincidence. A sad one. He was fantastic. So it's, I guess we should also mention it's very loosely based on Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick, classic sci fi novelist. Yeah. I read it as well. It's from, is it 68? I think 1968. I think so, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think, I guess back then, 2019 was so far away. I suppose you can't blame them for thinking flying cars would be the norm. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like back to, the the back to the future, yeah. yeah. Flying skateboards. Yeah. The, Having like a hoverboard in 2015. Uh, yeah, zip up yeah, shoes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Mm, and also flying cars, like roads. We don't, oh, yeah, we yeah, don't yeah. need roads. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if there's any movie out there where it's like, in the future, people are going to think the earth is flat and the vaccines give you autism. And actually got it right. Heaven forbid. Is the Earth not flat? <laughs> no, it's a dinosaur. Yeah. What do you want about? It's a There's dinosaur. A Millie Bobby mm-hmm. Brown video going around where she's like driving, or it looks like she's in a van. It's like she's like in the passenger seat or something. She's like, I guess I'm what you call a flat Earther. Is that what it is? There's loads of evidence, guys. And everyone, <laughs> she was like live streaming on Instagram, and everyone's like, Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> Hold Please tell up. me it was just a joke. <laughs> Um, so Blade Runner. So I think besides some of the obvious tropes that you get, like because the thing is in sci-fi films like this, you get there are a lot of things you expect, and as sort of Jamie said, it's it's really not. I think what most people expect, unless they've been told exactly what it is, most people do not really expect what Blade Runner is once they've seen it. I feel like you also mentioned it's sci-fi noir, which I think is a very good description because in noir films, you know, you get this character, this like hard-boiled detective has to come back for one last job you know he's brought back into the force for one last thing it's a very kind of cliche you know back to the 40s these things were being used for you know um mystery films and stuff and so yeah um, definitely i think what's i think once people know that side they then expect something else from the film and again it's still not that i think honestly that's mostly because rick deckard is pretty bad at his job i'm not gonna lie he's a pretty <laughs> bad blade runner um <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a hard job to have, though, because if he is actually a human, then um, he's going up against people that are stronger than him and faster than him. There is that. There is the fact that they are designed to be strong or, you know, well, I guess all of them are strong, yeah. And so... um, Technically, better is the word. Yes. I think that better in every way. They are more capable. They can outdo him, especially these Nexus 6, these new new Nexus 6 models that have been introduced. They're meant to be the best of the best, and um, they can outdo him. But yeah, he's he's not great. Um, so the sort of inciting incident that sets everything off is the fact that Deckard comes back to kill these six ne- uh, these six Nexus 
six replicants. Um, and I guess I, th I guess this is where we go into kind of the structure of how it's leading from one replicant to another to another, and then ends. And I'm not mm, sure how you yeah. feel about that. Um, it was it was sort of like laid up earlier because they did mention that there were six. It was like oh, if he's going to succeed his goal, then he's going to have to kill them. Mm -hmm. but, yeah, having them just be like, oh look, here's Zora. Oh yeah, she's dead. <laughs> can I can see that being a bit of an issue with, with some people? Had like didn't have issues over it, but their choices on how many of each there should be and then how many they should focus on. Because in the book, I'm fairly sure there's eight. You say there's eight. Yes, I think so. Then in this, they say there's six, but then they quickly rule out two, saying they. Oh yeah, the big accident. They got one. They like got caught in an electric field or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's Automatically narrows it down, which I think is good because we're not spreading stuff as wide. You can focus yeah, on from a structural pacing point of view. It does help. Yeah, and it allows more focus to be put onto the other ones. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Particularly, I Roy. love how yeah. compared to the book, the way it pans out and the way he tracks them down. Because towards the end in the book, I kind of find the part in the book where he finds Batty and Briss and another one with them at the end in this like building where they're hiding and stuff and then he goes and i was thinking oh this is going to be great he's going to like take them out and stuff but then he just sort of goes in and he wipes them out he goes home <laughs> job's done <laughs> literally he literally goes the either it's a security guard or a dude on the stairs he's like where are they uh <laughs> he doesn't say where's rachel but that would have been great <laughs> <laughs> gravelly voice yeah <laughs> where are they where's Chris? <laughs> I mean, where's Rachel? Because his girl, Rachel, yeah. It works perfectly. Um, and the guy on the stairs is like, no, I'm not telling you. And he's like, oh, the, but there's so many flaws. It's going to take me forever. And the guy's like, yeah, I'm not telling you because it could endanger me. And he's like, oh, fine. I'll go and search all these rooms and all these floors. And then like a page later, he's found them. And then there's like a, a minor tussle and he just he gets all three of them and then he goes, goes home. Because he's the perfect Blade Runner. <laughs> clearly in the book, girl on the beats film. brain. <laughs> yeah. I like the um, I like the setup that you sort of know through context that previous models of these you know, Nexus two, three, four, whatever these um, these machines they have you know some sort of purpose. Whereas we're told that the Nexus sixes have emotion chips. I like I like that. It's such an awesome sci-fi concept. Yeah, just put in an emotion chip and now they got emotion. Simple as that. <laughs> so plays into the simple. similarities with Star Wars again with the inhibitor chips and the clones. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. How they're kind I of guess. subject yeah. to the design of their creator, and how they're not mm. really they're, they're kind of pawns in one way or another. Um, Even though they don't. So want yeah, I think the line is like to be. fear, love, anger, hate. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they do, they do not. They sort of. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because over over time they they realize their intent and they kind of realize their their wider purpose in this you know broader scheme. And so, in the case of Roy, he leads this little revolution to try and increase his lifespan. In the case of the clones, mm. they try to, well, there's lots of conspiracies and that's a story for another time. Star Wars the clone was. But yeah, there's um yeah. It really of... makes him sympathetic though. Even though he's like a, he's ridiculously evil as a villain, but he's really sympathetic in that sense. Yes. Makes absolutely. him a good like grayish villain. Yeah. Thematically that's the core of everything. How through these emotions he has learned to become more human than human. I'll keep using that line because it's a it's a it's a good one. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. It's just two questions. Your thoughts? I know I've discussed this briefly with Tom. First is, why would you call them Blade Runners? 
And <laughs> second is, we know these replicants have got a lifespan of four years. Why would you want them to have a lifespan of four years? If well, they're going to be so useful. I mean, Blade Runner's kind of like a bad name because everyone knows you're not meant to run with scissors. So like, that should, <laughs> I've never that should be gone. As for why they're actually called Blade Runners, I have no idea considering they don't even use blades. I know. It sounds like ice skating, doesn't it? It sounds like the yeah. <sighs> Olympic sport, blade running. When? Tom and my conclusion was just somebody said it sounded cool. So. Yeah, it literally makes be. enough sense. I don't know if we can find the, out. Um, the latter point, though, the um, I think that was an intentional design because they realized we don't know about the lifespan of the previous models, but I think the four-year lifespan of Nexus Sixes was that in order to not develop their own desires and for those ideas not to take hold and take root and kind of lead them to do these terrible things, which actually did happen, they yeah, would give was... a lifespan so they can't emotionally develop too much. Basically, that was going to be my answer because they mentioned that through time they can develop their own emotions so it's like mm -hmm. stop them from doing that so that they yeah. can remain slaves yeah basically um so beyond roy who, who we've mentioned um we have pris i guess is the only there is zora and we have leon but the only sort of main stay really is pris she's the second in command you might argue played by daryl hannah yeah. absolutely and oh, um, god I, it's just bringing me back to her um the final fight scene with her that it literally looked like it was in a horror movie oh yeah when she's in the sort of flashing lights in the dark room with the creepy um creepy like dolls everywhere and everything and the screaming yeah absolutely yeah and then how like when she when she gets shot she just has like a seizure on the floor yeah oh everything yeah, in pain type thing. it yeah, was so disturbing. disturbing very well acted mm. we talked Not about the performances didn't we? recently yeah yeah well, I was going to mention this because Chris is an interesting one because Martin, you you spoke to me recently about Batman the animated series, yeah. um, and that's a series from that began in nineteen ninety two, and it's pretty iconic in lots of ways. It sort of gave us the modern incarnations of lots of um, comic book heroes and well, mainly the village really, because um, Harley Quinn most people think of as a pretty iconic character. She didn't debut until Batman the animated series. And I think it was like an episode in 1993 or 4. It wasn't even at the start. And it's widely sort of known that the main inspiration for the character of Harley Quinn is Pris. Really? That's oh, really? The, yeah. mm, that's the main kind of... Not know that. In terms I can of definitely see that. Original design and kind of, you know, the creepy, cackly kind of laugh and the, uh, and, and the fact that she's, you know, trying to get with, the, get with the main villain, so to speak, you know, Joker or Roy. Um, like, and very manipulative character as well. Yeah, yeah. How she manipulates J.F. Sebastian earlier on to kind of lure him into this, um, into being able to get to Tyrell to find out if they can increase their lifespan. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Before um, Roy goes and does a mountain from Game of Thrones and straight crushes his head. Yeah. Well, actually, I guess <laughs> the mountain pulled a batty because the mountain that happened after <laughs> the mountain. <pulled> <laughs> Mountain pulled a batty. Yep. I don't think anyone's ever said that. <laughs> in any other in any other context, that sentence would just make you look like you're batty. But um, no. I was. I feel like we do have to mention the versions now. Um, yeah, it's probably a good time to. So, eighty-two, the original. This is a this is the uh, United States domestic release. So that's the year of ET and Rocky. Rocky two actually. Um, and I believe the thing as well, right? 
yes. Yeah. Source 8. I'm trying to think of Yeah, I'll take your word for it. Still haven't seen it. Oh, that's really good. It's another one that leaves you with a question at the end. One of my favorites. Absolutely. Um, so in this version, the big thing is that basically the studio were afraid audiences wouldn't understand what was going on. They thought it was a bit too big brain for audiences back <laughs> in the day. And so Harrison Ford was asked to come back and do this awful, awful narration. And this voiceover was just like, and then I ordered some noodles. I was having a bad <laughs> day. And he purposefully phoned in his performance so badly and read the lines so badly. Oh, he was like, oh, thank God, they won't use my lines. But then they did. And so in this version of the film, they have these awful lines that he purposefully read badly. And they, and they <laughs> have no choice but to use them. So at the time, the, uh, the LA Times called it Blade Crawler. To <laughs> uh, make of that. Really <laughs> um, which I guess, basically, all feeds into the idea that, you know, back in the day, people weren't really on board with it, for the most part. Um, it lost art direction to Gandhi at the Oscars, and it lost visual effects to E.T. at the time. Imagine you might argue those yeah. both were worthy winners. For um, a moment, I forgot that Gandhi was a movie and thought you meant they lost art direction to Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> <laughs> he was just like painting. No. He, he was, was just awesome. big chilling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if there was like a puppetry award, then E.T. would be deserved. But I feel like in a, in a year that Blade Runner came out, it's like, in my opinion, the best looking film in the sort of pre-digital era. It's all done on film. It's all done. You know, get nominated. Yeah, it did. But I feel like it won any awards. I'm not sure. Sorry, curious typing engages. I feel like no. Um, but um, yeah. So while I look that up on another screen, you then got up release. So at the same time of um, <laughs> oh my god, I've searched Blade Runner Oscar, and it came up with Oscar Pistorius. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can see how that works. That's nope, it. That's Blade Runner awards, and it's apparently got three BAFTAs. Yeah, it won BAFTAs for best production design, best costume, costume design, design and, cinematography. and cinematography. And it got nominated for two Oscars. Which are those two? Yeah, visual effects and art direction. So, yeah. Why did it get nominated for score? Did the Golden Globes? Or either the it did, but not at the Oscars, which surprises mm. me. So I'm saying back then. Scores were, you know, they were Indiana Jones, they were Star Wars. They weren't funny noises. You know, that's what people thought of them. Um, So then after after this main release, at the same time, you have the uh, international release. So basically, the only difference is that overseas, they had three pretty violent scenes. And I have not been able to find out exactly which they are. But um, I I suspect the killing of Zora and Leon, where they're shot, you know, outside in the streets. Um, Yeah. So then these were later added in the Criterion release, you know, those fancy art house films that are released in their fancy Blu-rays, um, I guess, DVDs. The Criterion collection. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were added, but that was the only, the, the, that was the only way to view them up until uh, the final cut. So then okay. in 92, you have the director's cut. So this is the 10-year anniversary. So basically, a 70mm peep was found, but the thing is... It was found by some like, it wasn't, it wasn't meant to be found. It was basically some Warner Brothers like preservationist guy came across it, and so <laughs> it was like really poorly put together. It was a rough cut, and Ridley Scott basically removed himself from it and didn't claim ownership of it at all. And so it was screened a few times here and there, but it wasn't seen like it wasn't seen as official at all. 
Um, and so then there were some weird complications because they had to remove some temp music. So temp music, you know, is used by lots of different films. It's shared just to kind of get a get an idea about the tone of a scene, so that a, a, a composer can come in and actually fix it and make it the proper score. Yeah. So some temp for Planet of the Apes was was used, <laughs> but never replaced. And so that's the film's climax, without hey. a, without actually any uh, Evangelis music. So all the different hey. cuts are kind of a Frankenstein's monster. They go Planet of the Apes music and scenes from The Shining. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so this cut they found was this done when it first came out, but they just randomly found it. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if, if it was a like literally a rough version that was half edited, and then they kind of patched it up and just made it into a director's cut. It was probably like a comic relief sketch or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you random with the director's cut. Basically, there was sort of an unofficial director's cut that really has got nothing to do with. So this is the one that was found by this guy. Uh, the voiceover was removed, and they also removed... So in the international version, I forgot to mention, there is a weird like post credit scene almost, which is sort of dubbed the happy ending scene. And it's basically some generic helicopter footage of some mountains intercut with Deckard saying, like, oh, he's so glad to be out alive, or I'm happy that I'm out here with Rachel. Just awful, awful, awful. Um, <laughs> it does not look like they're flying through the mountains at all. It cuts between, like, Deckard in the car and mountain footage, and it's meant to look like they're driving through the mountains, but it just doesn't. Cheesy um, happy ending stuff. Yes, it looks like the start of The Shining, does it? <laughs> the car yeah, basically, yeah, basically. So there was then a proper director's cut. Really, Scott came in. He didn't like this version so much that he basically took that out, took out the um, yeah, he took out the happy ending scene. Um, voiceover was already gone, and he made it his sort of official uh, director's cut. Had the uh, Vangelis score. But then most controversially, this is where we get into some of the controversial elements. So you have, in 1985, so this is three years after the original film came out, and this is seven years before this director's cut. Here we uh, go. <laughs> you have some footage from the film called Legend of a Unicorn running through the woods. So right away, this is clearly not meant to be in the film. I could, can we agree that if a film came out in 1982, and you use some footage from 1985 <laughs> and into that film, it was clearly not meant to originally be there. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that was inserted as like a dream sequence for Deckard to basically say that the character of Gaff creating little unicorn origami pieces around the place, he then is aware of what is inside Deckard's head, what he's dreaming about. Therefore, the memories are somehow like accessible or they're fake, i.e., i.e., he's a replicant. So this is controversial at the time because this is just inserted from a completely different film to change a sort of essential idea about the film. Up until then, anyone who had a theory about Deckard being a replicant was seen as just kind of, you know, that's my theory and it would be cool if it was true. But now it's like the filmmaker has changed. And he really, Scott has some quotes where he basically says that he was always planning to do this. And he sort of took ownership of the film and kind of said, oh, it's mine. And he's seen as many as being quite egotistical. Basically, to say, you know, this is always my idea. I'm, I have the final say, even though he's not a screenwriter. It's not even his original book. He's just the director. He sort of claimed ownership of this whole thing, made this, you know, this second version of the director's cut his own thing, and said, nope, this is the story. This is how it is. So, yeah, I have a big gripe with that whole process. Um, Understandably so. So, um, I'll just quickly go over the final cut, and then we can sort of discuss Ridley Scott and that whole change and the whole replicant. Deckard stuff. Cool. So um, the final cut was 2007, so that's the 25th anniversary of the original. 
Um, it's the sort of the mainstream one nowadays. It's what you'll find on streaming services. Um, so basically, the changes are you have a longer version of that unicorn scene, so even more footage from a different film. <laughs> um, we have <laughs> more all of those... unicorn. We have more That's unicorn. Good. Yep. Uh, we have all of those violent scenes that were originally only in that international version. Um, they're put back in, and obviously all that voiceover is gone from the original theatrical cut. So that's what you left with the, with the uh, with the final cut. So pretty similar to the to the uh, director's cut for the most part. So um, I guess I'll open up to the floor. Do you guys think? I mean, we sort of already said it, but do you think that by inserting film by inserting footage from a, from a different film into your film, it was clearly not meant to be there. I.e., your artistic integrity is definitely open to question. Um, are we are we in agreement in some sense? Yeah, I definitely think you can be held accountable for that and then trying to claim that's what you wanted all along when you didn't do it then. Mm. Um, we can get into in a minute whether we think it's a better film because of it. Mm. Yeah, that's what's interesting to me. I feel like... I'll do that right now? <laughs> I mean, well, yeah. I feel like <laughs> the question itself isn't that interesting. I feel like to me... The film isn't really about whether or not he is a replicant. I think the idea that he is a human and that someone can have more humanity than him, something that isn't human can have more humanity than a human is what's interesting to me. And so this whole debate about whether or not he might be a robot and stuff, I think it's just kind of lost on me. I think it's kind of, I don't really get the appeal of the question. So I think it would, it would add a bunch of dramatic irony to a bunch of scenes though. <laughs> I mean, to his whole how I think of, of it, his whole line of work. Oh, how about <laughs> yeah. how about this? So we know from the Tyrell Corporation that replicants are more human and, than human. So what mm -hmm. Ridley's saying is that because Eckerd is a replicant, he's actually a human because he's more human than that. He's still a human, but he's more human. Oh my god, he's so That's... human that he's actually an android. Yeah, he is incredibly human. He's now replicant. That's galaxy brain. He's got like human in his base. That's like his base card. But then he's he's sort of like unlocked level two, which is replicant. He's both. <laughs> really, got his reverse card. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, he's whipped it out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I like the idea that you can have someone who doesn't know they're fake, which I think twenty forty nine explores really fantastically. Yeah. Um, well, and, and obviously the character of Rachel. She isn't aware. Yeah. Until and, Paris, unfortunately, Strahab tells her. Exactly, and he has an awful save when he goes, oh, bad joke. Because he feels <laughs> yeah. bad that, he told her that, his, that her memories are fake. Um, Very true. I feel like that plays into his character of being kind of a, you know, cliche detective, kind of hard-boiled, oh, I don't care about anyone. This, this femme fatale, I'm going to be, you know, cold to watch. Um, you know from... Yeah. 2049 that she's an X of 7 does that mean mm -hmm. she has the emotion chip? It would kind of mean she does because she does things in the original like she cries she does show some emotion and she also has witty responses like when he's asking questions in the, the like the original interview scene and she's sort of sassy in her replies do you think oh, she yeah. has an emotion chip? Well we're not sure how advanced, I mean, even a Nexus 1 might have been capable of that. It's, it's not really explored exactly what the emotion chip is able to actually kind of unlock in terms of their sort of interaction. Um, so that leaves us with more questions. We'll not actually have that. Not like massively interesting questions, but just 
Yeah. I, th- I guess they're more mechanical questions than philosophical, but exactly, and that's that's where most of my issues lie with all this sort of discussion. It's it's the fact that it's 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 so mechanical. It's not about thematically the fact that you know Roy, who we know is a replicant, has has such a sense of purpose that he's become more human because he wants to extend his life and experience more things. You know these these moments that are lost in rain or whatever. You know in the in the final monologue, these he wants to experience these things because he experienced like you know the beauty of life. No, so by by contrasting that with a really cynical man who doesn't appreciate his life or people around him, or you know, I I think that's a really interesting sort of contrast, and that's the crux of the entire film, and that's what it stands on, and that sort of played out so well in those final moments and those final scenes, really, when they're running around, it's just completely broken down into their like animalistic instincts. Deckard is just running, and Roy is going crazy, bashing his head through walls, like. Howling sort of, like a wolf as well. Literally howling like a wolf. Very like animalistic. A game. Like a game too. Yeah, absolutely. It's mentioned a that he's just trying to have fun with it. Hence his, you know. Yeah. Mentioned at the time. Mentioned at the time, didn't I, about Leon and that whole scene with Gary Oldman where he's going through the apartment with the shotgun and Beethoven's playing and he's almost doing it to the music, the way he moves and stuff. Oh, yeah, it's very much an so art he's to him. having fun. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think Roy is he's so desperate because he knows his time is up. He's just trying to sort of go crazy with having experiences. He's like, oh, I've got to have lots of experiences right before I die. I better go crazy and just do all this weird stuff. Um, <laughs> we think he wished, looking back, that he took a gap yard or <laughs> a gap yard. <laughs> As in, he takes a quarter of his life to go like, bagpacking or something in Southeast <laughs> Asia to find himself. We think. <laughs> it, depends on what, it depends on what time he finds out that he has a four year lifespan. If it's been like three and a half years, <laughs> and then he plans a year out, and he dies <laughs> after his trip. Well, that, um, that extends his lifespan, surely. He's got a year planned, therefore he's going to live till four <laughs> and a half years. Big brain. Oh, goodness. I'm going to bring up my... I don't even know if it's controversial, but I've got reasons for it. And it's, it's not Ridley's reasons, but I'm backing the idea that he's a replicant on two main reasons. Um, and I do acknowledge and see that it's dumb to have put it in afterwards... And personally, I really do wish he was human. But for me, the film works better when he's a replicant. First reason is uh, more mundane. If he's a human, Gaff shouldn't exist. He's pointless. What do you think of that? Yeah, Gaff's whole bit is literally just taunting him. What's the point of having origami? And then that's about it. Literally comes in and he's like, oh, you coming in and you've got to go and see is it Bryant and he's going to brief you mm-hmm. what's the point of that Bryant could have just sent him a text or whatever and then he's <laughs> making some little origami figures and then he gets his cameo in 2049 without that ending scene Gaff's pointless that's my first reason yeah. I don't know if you've ever thought of it like that but that just hit me second reason is um, the ending I think without that final twist, the ending isn't as good because the sort of cat and mouse whole scene with Roy isn't very long. That should have been possibly longer, the sort of chasing and whatever. I know we get the stuff in the apartment and he like smashes his head through the wall and he's playing with him and then they do the jump and then he delivers the monologue. That happens. I think that whole segment, that scene is quite short. And then to just, he expires and then Deckard goes away with Rachel, and it's just a happy ending. I think that would suck. 
without having that thing at the end that leaves us going away being like, whoa! What do you think? Um, well, it's less of a happy ending because Decker's on the run because he has not retired Rachel, this replicant. She's He's not trying... a Nexus 6. Oh, well, it's, it's, just, it's just replicants themselves have been outlawed on Earth. They do kind of just go off into the sunset, though, so it's quite happy. Um, on the run, though, he has to leave his apartment and his life behind to be with her. Um, and this also actually ties into one of my other problems with the film, to be honest, because I don't think they have any chemistry. And it's not really one of those classic Hollywood romances, you know, Deckard and Rachel. They, the, Harrison Ford and uh, Sean Young hate each other on set, and apparently it's quite awkward. And some of those scenes where, you know, Deckard's a very cynical man, the opposite of, you know, Roy, who's just very childlike in lots of ways. Deckard is so cynical, he just needs affection so much that he's, it's a pretty sort of, it's basically assault the sort of, you know, what he commits on Rachel halfway through the film. Um, yeah. And it's, it doesn't frame any good light and it makes you question why she would go off with him and why she feels anything towards him. And that's part of my kind of very aggressive it. love scene. Yes. It makes it less happy, the ending, and it kind of makes me question <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a funny one. I love the film, but there's, there are some character things that don't work. I mean, everything with Roy. Roy is the main character. It's almost like sort of an Avengers Infinity War style thing where the villain is the main character. He's the one with the arc. It's sort of allegorical for... Um, yeah, absolutely. It's sort of allegorical for... Um, I was reading this guy drew this like really big brain comparison to um, uh, Dante's Inferno, you know, going through into like purgatory yeah. and up to heaven, how he Roy starts in the underworld and he goes up and sort of works his way up through this ladder through the Eye Maker and then, you know, um, he finally gets to... Uh, to Tyrell himself to meet his god up in the up in the heavens. You know, he ascends to these really tall buildings. He goes up to heaven to yeah. meet him finally. Um, that whole idea that he is the one who's driven, as opposed to Deckard, who's just cynical and kind of disconnected, I think is amazing because Deckard is a protagonist, or where he's the good guy. But in the, in the sense of the like story structure, Roy is a protagonist, and Deckard is just some cynical side character. Um, and I love that because yeah, obviously that. Roy, is, Roy is the interesting one. I prefer that view of the movie, actually, yeah. It's like how Thanos is the main character of Avengers Infinity War. How, I mean, yeah. obviously, they're a better example. Here's me just you know, trying to liken things back to Marvel. <laughs> but, um, well, I mean, yeah. they made him the main character by having, at the end, the whole Thanos will return, like they did for each hero in oh, the yeah, solo yeah. movies. Mm -hmm. That just enforces that idea, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Two things. Yep. Completely random points. First is... Um, See Tyrell in the original, and then Wallace in Sacramento. I know we were talking about this when we rewatched it, Tom. Why are they not held more accountable? They've obviously created all these replicants for the greater good, <laughs> the greater good of mankind, and they have been helpful. But then they've created these monsters or things that have turned into monsters, and they're just sort of chilling in their big fancy abodes. What do we think of that? I think. It's sort of a, I think it's a comment on capitalism. I think it's a comment on kind of societal structures, how those who do wrong and those who wield lots of power, no matter how they use that power, they are still privileged in many ways. I think it's a comment they're on that. Untouchable. They avoid the law. Yeah, they're untouchable. And I think it's almost like a, it's like the CEO of Apple or Google or whatever. I think it's a, it's, it's like the idea that these people have created such good for mankind, they can't be held specifically responsible for some of them doing certain things. I feel like they, they implemented what measures they, th they thought they should, 
like the four-year lifespan and sending them off world and making them outlawed on Earth. But it can't stop them because they are Steve. They are still free will beings. You know, I don't think anyone would actually have an issue calling Roy Bat a human, even though he is a machine. He is human for all intents and purposes. So he is driven to kind of return to Earth and commit these crimes. They can't. I take your point. They should be held accountable because they created these machines, ultimately. But um, yeah. I think it's just. I, I think it's a comment on society. I think. Yeah, it's probably like an in theory versus in practice thing. In theory, they should mm-hmm. definitely be held accountable and for their actions or whatever, but just in practice it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just sort guess, of to focus on. I guess also with the whole capitalism thing, when you get the people in power letting other people do the dirty work, that's why they've got the Blade Runners going around retiring oh, yeah. the replicants, because they can't the be bothered to do it themselves. Yep, you, you should think they would have some sort of system whereby they can shut down a replicant yeah. if, it's, if it's doing wrong. Execute a kill yeah. switch or something. But... Yeah. Although I guess that leads me on well, it doesn't lead me on to my second point, but just in 2049, obviously, K is a replicant, so they've clearly created replicants to take out other replicants. Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah, maybe instead of having that shutdown switch, kill switch. No, it's probably a dumb way to tackle Fight it by fire with fire, replicant. fight replicant with replicant. Literally. Yeah. I mean, anyway, second... I'm sorry, go on. No, no, you carry on, because that's relevant to what we're saying. I was about to say, does that lead us on to discussing 2049? But we do have the middle section to... Uh... We do. Mm. I just want to mention like, one other thing. Going back to your bit on the chemistry between Harrison and Sean Young, mm. not defending it, not condoning what happened, could you argue that it's bad? Because if he's a human and she's a replicant, there's, it's always going to be kind of awkward romantically. And also, if he's a replicant and she's a replicant, that being two types of robots would make it really weird and sort of awkward. Well, they sort of touch on that in the 2049, though, don't they? When um, Wallace says, like, you two were designed to come together and Tyrell, mm. like, brought you together. Yes, I was going to mention that, A. And B, I think, honestly, it's just part of their character. I think it's... it's, it's, it's I don't have a problem that the film chose to make it like this. I just don't think we should really be happy for them because they clearly are pretty messed up. So it's 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 that's the fact that I think it's like a, a bad thing that the film chose to do that. I just think it doesn't make them that likable because Harrison Ford is, I mean, Rick Deckard is not likable. He's bad at his job. He's cynical, and he's so desperate for any kind of affection and real connection that he, you know, abuses Rachel. I do um, like the way they kind of yeah. left his past out of it. He's obviously got some prior grievance, or he's unhappy with his life for some reason, and we just don't know what it is. Yep, it goes back to the idea that the world is as it exists, and we don't need backstories for every little bit. You understand that Deckard is cynical, that he is jaded, you know, absolutely. And a push that could also play into him being a replicant. (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, I don't know, I mean... Another thing that um, I've just remembered is one of the bits of evidence I saw for him being a replicant was that um, Batty never kills any replicants throughout the whole movie. He only kills humans, and then he spares Deckard's life at the end for seemingly Ooh, no reason. Big evidence. Oh. <laughs> Your Honor, <laughs> I introduced you Article A. <laughs> I hadn't heard about that. That's pretty cool, actually. Um, Wait the case. Why do we on... think he saved him? To give his amazing speech. 
He wanted someone to hear a speech. Yeah, that's all it was. He'd written it down, just popped it into his jacket pocket. Yeah. I mean, he he definitely wasn't trying to kill Decker that whole time. He was trying to hurt him and make this weird sort of game. I don't mm. think it, I don't think he would get anything out of killing him. He's just trying to. Um, it's yeah, it's a funny. He was way. asserting He's, his dominance. Let's go with that. He was. He absolutely was. He was sort of yeah, going through. Did it because many he was good. better. Yes. It's almost like a proof that he is more human than human. There we go, once again. Yeah. Little line. Um, <laughs> I was going to mention about that monologue very quickly that um, the film Soldier, so I think it's written by David Peoples, I think is his name. Basically, it's sort of considered now to be like a spin off sidequel to Blade Runner, like a spiritual successor in a way, because okay. people kind of believe that they um, take place in the same universe. And it's basically only because this, the spinner, the classic sort of ship that Decker drives, that lots of people drive similar things to, is seen in Soldier. And also in the... Um, there's like... Well, Kurt Russell is in the film Soldier, and his character is kind of shown to have fought in some of the battles that Roy mentions. So the shoulder of Orion and Tannhauser Gate are actually mentioned by Kurt Russell. Ooh, very briefly. David Peoples is just making his own expanded universe. It sounds like you're just hijacking other people's projects to say, oh no, I'm, I'm the Blade Runner sequel. <laughs> yeah, it's just sequel adjacent, you know. Absolutely. Canon adjacent. It did not pop up in WandaVision when they went to the cinema and it said above it, Townhouse Gate. Yes. There was, a, there was a Blade Runner reference in WandaVision. I was very, very happy to see that. Enjoyed uh, that. I don't know if you remember that, Jamie. No, I do not, because I didn't, hadn't watched Blade Runner at that point when I watched WandaVision. Yeah, can't believe that. <laughs> it would need a lot of foreshadowing. Also, yeah. um, Jamie, you talked earlier. I don't even know what you'd call it. Would you call it a mistake? About yeah, you explain it. The goof when um, Deckard's doing his zoom and enhance thing that's supposed to be really dull. When he's actually like looking in the mirror to see the snake mark or whatever it is. When he's moving the image around, there's like a parallax effect where the um. Where is it? Is it Zora? Mm-hmm. Is in the image? Yeah. Yeah, like Zora's position moves relative to the mirror, which just shouldn't oh, really? happen on the 2D oh. image. Yeah, I can't imagine having a parallax effect on on a, like a photo, basically, or like footage. Mm-hmm. It can be terribly useful to try and work out where something is. Uh, <laughs> Turn a 2D image not... 3D. Well, that'd be brilliant. Yeah, I had not noticed that. I love how niche that is. That's great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, I'll have to, have to notice that next time. I did not realise. One final question I was going to have for Tom. When, when Roy gives his final monologue thing, they cut away to like a dove flying away. They do. Why? Like, dove symbolism is like purity or something, isn't it? As I've probably well, just Googled now. Well, based on that, <laughs> I think that fits almost perfectly. His... His methods, while bizarre and, you know, very sort of self-driven in the sense that he was killing other people in order to get his way, in order to meet his maker ultimately, are, his intentions are extremely pure in the sense that he just wants more life. Based on his experiences, you know, he says, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. He is, he is such a lived experience in such a short time and he wants to elongate that in some way. And the world oppresses these replicants. They've banned them. They've made them criminals just by being what they are um yeah, true. and so i think by embracing entirely what he is and accepting the fact that he has this 
limited life and he's literally about to die any second. It's kind of a, yeah, it's almost like a sigh of relief for him that he knows he now has no control and he's died a sort of a, almost a natural death in the way that he was intended to be. Like a human will die eventually. I don't know. It's kind of a, it's an interesting idea that he's, as I say, more human than human, more pure <laughs> than our cynical protagonist Deckard. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the mechanics of why he has a dove in his hand, who knows? <laughs> um, who knows? Is the magician um, playing into that animalistic thing from earlier? Totally. Yep, that's I mean, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought well, um, actually, I have. I've gone. Another question: Why was it raining all the time? <laughs> that's just, I don't know, I'm assuming it was just meant to add to the dystopian feel, but I was like, I kept noticing that Roy's face was wet, and I was like, it can't have been raining still, right? <laughs> I reckon they filmed it in Northern Ireland. That's probably. Why. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like not on location yeah. in Belfast. <laughs> <laughs> I could believe that. It's always dark. It's always miserable and cold. It's always wet. It's like in Britain, giant skyscrapers and flying cars. And... Oh, yeah, that's about right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's why you went to Ireland. <laughs> yeah, I was like that because of like yeah. Blade Runner. I would have definitely gone to university there. Hmm. Awesome. <laughs> it's weird. It's it's come to the weather. Because it's like it's set to, it's meant to be filmed in, oh, not, it's not meant to be filmed. It's meant to be located in America, right? But yep. to me, it kind of felt like I, it was in Tokyo or something. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah Just from um, all the vibrant lights, it felt like Tokyo. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, and if, if you notice loads of the supporting cast, loads of these sort of, it's, it's a complete mish, like, mishmash of different cultures. It's like a big sort of, oh, yeah. A lot of different, um, different races and ethnicities and all of it. Yeah, because it's, in this sort of dystopia, I guess it's, you know, most of the world is these giant cities. And so the distinction between, you know, countryside or what little there is left versus the city is so, you know, intense that like um, everyone heads to these cities and they become these, yeah, they become these melting pots. And uh, yeah, visually the sort of production design is very much inspired by those big metropolis, you know, cityscapes like Tokyo, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think I, just the, mm. the, the rate is very much about the whole, you know, brutalist aesthetic. It's very kind of cold and stark and unforgiving. And it just adds Good to that, I think. setting for a noir, I guess. Absolutely. Very classic for noir films, yeah. yeah. True. I just want to talk about going on what you were just saying about uh, how it looks. Um, the scaling as well, and the way we get told about that, and certain shots. Obviously, you've got the stuff at the start, and you see these big buildings, but you don't know how big they are until we see a car or something. It's something mm-hmm. you pointed out, Tom, when we were watching it, how cool it looks. Um, works again in 2049 oh, yeah. really well. Then you've also got those shots of, is it when Batty walks away with, who's he walk away with? And then the camera sort of pans, and then there's a bunch of cyclists. Yeah, with Leon, this is one scene that really just allows the viewer to engage with the atmosphere and just like let sort of the world sink in. There's a shot where... As, cool. Roy, as Roy and Leon are on the way to the Eye Maker, they have a little quick conversation, and then the actual required action for that scene has long since been finished. But the shot continues for like another thirty seconds, just slowly panning, panning over the street, and some cyclists come through, just really like just settle into the world. It's pouring down. It's just really yeah. random. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, I love that stuff. Very atmospheric. Twenty forty nine is amazing for that sense of scale because quite early on, you see the big sort of pyramid buildings from the first film. Dwarfed by these new pyramid buildings, um, yeah, it's just such a visual way to identify the fact that it's been thirty years later. Things have changed. Things have gotten arguably worse. 
you know, in some sense. Um, that's very, Who's the cinematography for the first one? Couldn't tell you, I'm afraid. Um, uh, what's it say on here? Uh, Wikipedia tells me it was Jordan Cronenworth. Cronenworth? Hmm. Can't say I know. Do I know that name? Zandi's Bride, Gable and Lombard, Altered States. Altered States is famous, is it? Um, and Peggy Sue got married. He's credited as who defined the cyberpunk aesthetic. Yeah, absolutely. This this film was credited as sort of establishing that whole idea. It definitely absolutely. looks like cyberpunk. I mean, I don't I don't have too much more to say on the film. I enjoy it very much. I have problems with it, but I love how much it influenced, you know, science fiction and the whole aesthetic and it's got some interesting sort of debates about what it means to be human and kind of beyond as well. Yeah. Mm, very philosophical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of my favorites, absolutely. Yeah. Although I guess someone like Leon does not seem very human. He seems really creepy to me. <laughs> oh, yeah. I do like, like that contrast. Like, going back to that, um, I, I make a scene with uh, James Hong playing the, the eye maker where he's just like laying eyeballs on his shoulders the whole time. That just, uh, that just unnerved me. I love that kind of weird fantasy sort of, you know, just giant frozen room where this man designs eyes to put in robot machines. It's so cool and weird mm. and just like, it doesn't try to explain itself. It's just, this is the guy who makes the eyes. Yes. <laughs> I love that kind of world, world building. building. Yeah. No. That brings us on to the middle section. Uh, let's start with your iconic, our established section of a fag hoot, Jamie. Go for it. We really need to get that jingle sorted, eh? Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So our fag hoot goes. A woman who is three months pregnant is in an accident at work and falls into a deep coma. Six months later, she awakes and immediately asks the doctor about her baby. The doctor says, they're fine, don't worry, it was a successful procedure. The woman replies, oh good. Wait, they? And the doctor says, oh yeah, you had twins, a boy and a girl. Your brother even took the initiative and named them for you. The woman says, oh no, not my brother, he's an idiot. What did he name them? The doctor says, well, your daughter's called Denise. The woman, well, that isn't too bad. What about my son? The doctor says, the nephew. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I think that's, that's like a joke joke. <laughs> Yeah, it's meant to be puns, but we were struggling on what to find. Yeah, we, if anybody has any fake hoots, send them in, please. We're yeah. struggling, and this is episode three. Well, we're struggling to find ones that aren't like five paragraphs long. <laughs> and that <laughs> sense of time. Yeah, true. <laughs> That's great. We'll try and get another one uh, next episode, which brings me on to my undisclosed games. So I haven't told you like either about this but i want to play a game of <laughs> i want to play coppola or not question mark it sounded like so, a jigsaw there i want to play a game <laughs> very sinister indeed it's half one in the morning i can be sinister <laughs> i want to play coppola or not so i'm gonna give you by the way you can't google or look up family trees of any of these people um Damn, there goes my strategy <laughs> yeah, especially Tom on his quiet keyboard. Yeah, mm. to hear it all. I'm going to give you names of famous actors or actresses, and I want you to tell me whether they are a Coppola 
or not. So, example, Coppola or not a puller. <laughs> yeah, let, let's call it that. I, I can't say that. I can't pronounce that. So you'll have to you can do a jingle for us. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no. Okay. So if I said Francis Ford Coppola, you'd tell me director of the Godfather no. films plus a couple of a apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> I walked into that one. Apocalypse Now, you'd say Coppola. Okay. Um, and if they are <laughs> not a Coppola, <laughs> then I want you to try and tell me whose son, daughter, relation to them they are to somebody else who is also famous. So it's not just like <laughs> there's a celebrity and I want you to tell me that a dad was called Jeff or something. Um, oh, yeah. accent. Okay. Cool. So I've got about 10. That could be Coppola or not Coppola. <laughs> so uh, Coppola to this and Coppola. Uh, <laughs> okay, I'll start. With... <laughs> I can't get through this. I'll start with. Um, I want to say Quayley, so I'm going to go Margaret Quayley. Coppola or not Coppola? Margaret Quayley. I'm going to go with not a Coppola. <laughs> I'm going to go with not Coppola either. I'm going fifty-fifty. I have no idea. Okay. The answer. <laughs> I don't know why I'm building this up. The answer is Drumroll, not a Coppola. <laughs> so you're both correct. Hey. Can you tell me who she is? The daughter of. Um, she starred in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, amongst other things. That's Margaret Qualley, not her, her mother. So I'm assuming it's not a Qualley famous person. Like it's a different surname. It is not a Qualley. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Brad Pitt. Her mother was Panther. I wish. Yeah. Uh, her mother is Andy McDowell. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. A little surprising one for you there. Okay. Uh, the next one is Maya Hawke, who was also uh, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and also Stranger Things 3 uh, because mm-hmm. she was Scoops Ahoy, Steve's uh, co worker, Robin. Oh, yes. Robin. Yes. Yes. So, Coppola, or not a Coppola? Ooh, that seems too random. Coppola. Yeah, I'm going Coppola. You're saying Coppola? The mm. answer is not a Coppola. Oh. <laughs> and, is anyone in this family? Well, we could get onto whether they're Coppolas or <laughs> not a Coppolas. Um, now she's been revealed as not a Coppola. Who is she the daughter of? And I'd like both parents because they're both Guess guessable. My name's Maya Hawk. So, yeah. Right. Well, my first guess would be Ethan Hawk. Yeah. Yep. What about Tony um... Hawk? <laughs> well, isn't hang on? Isn't Ethan Hawk one of those people who has a funny celebrity like relationship that most people had no idea they were even a thing? Yeah, it's like Joaquin and Rooney Mara. Yeah, yeah. Although they were together in her. True. <laughs> Is it? I feel like it's a. Oh. I, no I, I remember. Uh, Uma Thurman. Correct. Uma Thurman. Ooh, nice good, get. good get. Very good get. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Right. Brings me on to my next one. So, Coppola or not a Coppola? Uh, Talia Shire. AKA Adrian. Adrian, yes. Rocky. <laughs> and also, <laughs> I want to say Connie from The Godfather. Yes. And that connection. I think is why I seem to remember in the back of my mind that she is a Coppola. I'm going to go Coppola as well because we've had two not a Coppolas in a row. 
could I be doing the big brain of three cop not a couple isn't it right oh god find out <laughs> on the next <laughs> she is a coppola yes cool so she was the daughter of the composer Carmine Coppola he did a bunch of uh, original music for uh, the Godfather films ah very cool um Brings me on to my next one. <laughs> so, Coppola or not a Coppola? Dylan Penn. Um, I'm going to go not a Coppola just because I can think of a surname. Um... I'm going to go with Coppola. Ooh, first time he's disagreed. Mm. The answer is not a Coppola. Ah. Now, who are his parents? And both of them are gettable. Is it? Well, is it Sean Penn, Penn and Robin Wright? It is. I it that is. was. I did not know that those two. Yes, because were together for a long time. Yes, for a long time, she was not. Her sort of professional name was Robin Wright Penn, not just Robin Wright. Um, uh, so yes, that was my little deductive reasoning in my head. That was my little yeah. So it's not Penn and Teller. You not. love Penn and Teller. Did you not bring Penn and Teller up the other day or last That's podcast? Basically. I probably did. I just love Penn and Teller. I've watched a lot of um, magicians' acts of the Penn and Teller Foolers on YouTube. Uh, I really like what, them. What ratio would you say they get fooled? I reckon it's like 5%. Um, probably not that often, but most of the stuff they upload to YouTube is them being fooled. Oh, that makes sense. Although, no is, it not a thing, is it not really dumb? Because they, they literally do the trick in front of them, and they're like... We know how you did that, but we also can't tell people how you did that. Yeah. So, <laughs> it just defeats everything. Yeah, we know how you did that. How does the contestant know? They just take their word for it. Speak through code. And the contestants are like, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> Imagine sure. If that one dude who goes, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, on to my next. Coppola or not a Coppola? Amy Lee Curtis. Not a Coppola. Straight up Coppola, you think? Not a Coppola. Not a Coppola, okay. I'm going to go with... Some of these seem too random. Like, how would you think of this? But then I guess the question is, is she a Coppola or not? <laughs> I don't yeah. know if it's too random. Um, I'm going to go with no. Okay. The answer is... Not a Coppola. So you're both correct. Good. Um, and her father, do you know anything about <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis's father? I Again, it's one of those that I vaguely remember to have been part of a famous family, but I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Don't sorry. Us. Richard Curtis. Yeah, Richard Curtis, is it? American oh, it's actor. Right. You'll probably know him okay. in Some Like It Hot. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, with Jack oh, Lamont. Oh, right. Okay, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And he was also in Spartacus. Oh. Was he Spartacus? No. Because <laughs> everyone was Spartacus in Spartacus. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> you've got to say, Tom. We were like, no, no, he was not Spartacus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. The next one is uh, Tom won't possibly know whether this person is a couple or not, and if they're not who they are. Nick Cage. Hmm. Jimmy, go first. I feel like this one's going to be a strange one, and it's actually that he is a Coppola. You can't retract once I've... You can't change your answer once I've said it. 
Oh, so you know the answer then? Yes. Definitely knows the answer. He is. He is. Sure is a Coppola. And apparently he his his dad was called August Coppola. <laughs> and uh August Coppola was the brother of Francis Ford Coppola. So mm. uh, So he's a really close relation to Francis. Yeah. I wonder why he went for Cage. You know why he went for Cage. He shortened Coppola and just misspelt it. <laughs> he probably got fed up you know when you used to do the maths challenge and you had to do your surname but you had to go like up and down the boxes to like oh, yeah. like fill in each letter as you went along yeah, you had to do like a cross in the box and the letters were listed vertically and you were going like yeah. M, C, K, whatever it got really annoying I bet he just went ah, I don't want to put Coppola Cage <laughs> in like junior maths challenge yeah. leads me on to <laughs> the next one, which is Angelina Jolie, Coppola or not a Coppola? Nope. I feel like it would Ooh. be more famous, and that would make yeah. early Brad Pitt a Coppola by proxy. <laughs> you proxy my Coppola. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go no as well. If a not a Coppola, the answer is not a Coppola, and who is her dad? Ooh, I don't know. I don't think I know much about her, to be completely honest. Um... All that's coming to mind for me is Jolie Bindo, a character from Star Wars. <laughs> Who is that? What? <laughs> it's from the Knights of the Old Republic game. Mm. Incredibly <laughs> niche. Why, why is that coming to you? Sorry. Because Jolie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Her dad is John Voigt, the actor. Really? Yeah. Yes. Oh, my. Yes, I would... think I'd heard this. Yeah. That's bizarre. No, no. Regions. I wish this could be a weekly feature, but I've probably run out of Coppola's within <laughs> two episodes. <laughs> after my younger <laughs> family. Right, okay, my next one is... That's a very Blade Runner appropriate, by the way. John Voigt Kampf test. Um, yes, Voight Camp. Yeah, the test that they're doing the replicants, Jamie. Yeah, Voight, John Voight Camp. Yeah. <laughs> Should have called it the Voight Jolie test. <laughs> That'd be great. Okay, my next one is Oz Perkins. Uh, uh, yes. Um, oh. Yes, because he's does such bizarre, as... like, some bizarre acting. Yeah, go on. Apparently has a brief role in Star Trek, the JJ one. Oh, um, he directed a weird horror film, Gretel and Hansel, last year. Yeah, um, about that. Directed and wrote the Twilight Zone from last year. Mm-hmm. Oh, is it um, from Psycho? Uh, Anthony Perkins. It is. His father. Oh, I didn't say yeah, whether so he was or not. Yeah, he's not a couple of because Anthony Perkins, I think. Yeah, he is not a Coppola because Anthony Perkins, a.k.a. Norman Bates, apparently, Charles Perkins' first acting role was Psycho 2, appearing uh, as the 12-year-old version of Norman Bates that yeah, his father yeah. played. Yeah. Psycho 2, Too Fast, Too Furious. <laughs> <laughs> Psycho 2, Electric Boogaloo. Psycho 2, Tokyo Drift. <laughs> Any relation um, to Sue Perkins? I wish. Oh, we could play a, a game of Perkins or not Perkins. 
Yeah, there you go. That'd be rather perky. Um, <laughs> next one. Um, Jason Schwartzman. Been in lots of Wes Anderson stuff. Not a Coppola. Argus Race 4. I'm going to go yes. Going for Coppola. Yes, I am. So it is Coppola. Oh, I'm afraid I was aware of this one along with oh. loopholes because he, uh, I think his dad married Talia Shire. Did Jack Schwartzman? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Married Talia Shire, second wife. Mm-hmm. And um, they had, she had two sons with him, Jason and Robert Schwartzman. Which brings me to the final. It's sad this game's ending. It's just taking <laughs> it. <laughs> like, yeah, we need like a initial coin offering for Coppola or not Coppola. Yeah. People will like, give us their fun so we can fund more Coppola content. Final one is like each guest that comes on is a new family. <laughs> and we're just bringing up people that could be in their family that they've got no idea about. That would be great. Sure, <laughs> my yeah. One, my final one is Una Chaplin, who was in Game of Thrones, was in uh, Taboo, the series with Tom Hardy on the BBC. It was very good, and I'm still waiting for season two about four or five years after the first one aired. Was she, um, we've got to Rob's... establish whether she was Rob's wife, yeah. Rob's wife, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna go with Coppola, that's too random. To yeah, I'm gonna go with Coppola too. Answer is you've both been fooled on the final one, it's not a Coppola. Ooh. Oh, oh so got him. So, like, <laughs> almost a connection, yeah, he's like a, like... like a Coppola or something, or a, a three card Monty Coppola. It was. Uh, she is the granddaughter of. What are you thinking? Charlie Chaplin. Correct. Apparently. Oh wow! Oh, that's cool. Charlie Chaplin. Oh. The play. Damn. <laughs> Fun fact about Charlie Chaplin: he came third in the Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest. Did. He did. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love it even more if there are only three people in it. <laughs> so bad. We have to give him third place. <laughs> it would be too uncanny for him not to be Charlie Chaplin, so it's clearly a fraud. Mm. He's, <laughs> He's more Chaplin than Chaplin instead of more. <laughs> Bringing us back to Blade Runner. I love it. Okay, that uh, concludes Coppola or not a Coppola. That's <laughs> a fantastic game. Mm. Yeah, I know, right? us on to 2049. Yeah, yes. an 8.0 out of 10 on IMDb. Mm. Speaking of that IMDb score, I think, I think that's a reaction to what we discussed earlier with people expecting a certain thing and being let down by trailers and by yeah. runtime. I feel like lots of people took that opportunity to have a nap between action sequences. Um, <laughs> people who didn't, people who weren't aware of what the film was sort of meant to be. Um, which is completely understandable because of how it was marketed. I think it's a uh, yeah, it's a shame. Mm. It was uh... especially because am I right in saying that all three of us thought twenty forty nine was better than the original, or is it just me and Martin? I'm going with the S as well. I yeah, like it more. Yeah, it's what point one out of ten lower. 
yes, I mean, obviously, IMDb scores, they can be, they can reflect so many things, like so many different cultural opinions based on the fact that, you know, the, the first Blade Runner had been out for ages when IMDb was made. It's It was seen as a classic at that time, and it's so many different kind of reasons why people vote in certain ways and popular films get either sort of boosted up or down depending on popular opinion of other people on social media that people then get influenced by. So it's, yeah. I don't Maybe it's too like Godzilla versus Kong where it's being review bombed with hashtag restore the Snyderverse. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess in 2017, what was the equivalent? <laughs> Release the Snyder Cut. Oh yeah, I guess at the end of... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's very true. We talk at some point on why why the first one bombed at the box office and the second one didn't make anywhere also bombed to be honest, as much as we sh- it should have yes the first one i think review and word of mouth was so much more important back then and it meant that um you know people who had seen a bad review they then took that to mean oh it's bad and i therefore will not see it at all and it's only yeah. sort of since getting a cult following and now it's got a mainstream cult following but it's still yeah. after the fact whereas with 2049 I think it just didn't make money because it was mismarketed, and people. I think I think people get really turned off by the runtime, and by. Yeah. There's a lot of discussion on amount of screenings per day that cinemas could do. Yes, absolutely. So long. Yeah, it was what two hours forty-seven. With credits, yeah. I think the first one did. The first one come out when ET was like out at the same time. Do you think people went and saw that instead? Yeah. Yes, there is that. I think ET had a very. I mean, obviously, unbelievably successful box office run, but also was out for a long time. Whereas Blade Runner, I think, didn't have the legs, and so cinemas couldn't justify keeping it around. There is that. Um, And you saw... Well, I was going to say, and with with, uh, 2049, it's come out in in the sort of era of lots of blockbusters. So in late 2017, you had, what, you had Alien Covenant, you had Thor Ragnarok, yeah, just League, yeah. Um, and I guess maybe early 2018 films as well would have affected people's decision to not see that and see other stuff. So, yeah, I felt like it just it was surrounded by competition that would always have made more money. Um, but uh, then again, Avengers Endgame, three hours, almost three billion dollars. So, um, oh, yeah. Yeah, although I feel as though that even though it's three hours and you could get less screenings per day, there would be more screens showing it because yes. 10 years in the making or whatever compared Definitely. to this sort of solo mm-hmm. film. So, Absolutely. The Blade Runner sort of international box office market is basically non-existent, as far as I can tell. Whereas with the big blockbusters, it's where the, it's the, it's the uh, international markets that really make loads of the money. Um, but nonetheless, it doesn't affect the um, quality of the film. In any way, shape, or form, yeah. uh, so that it unfortunately won't get a sequel because it didn't make enough money, and that's also that's also kind of the reason why people are unfortunately expecting Dune to fail the same way. It's um, I think it will. Unfortunately, yes, it has an amazing cast. I mean, the most amazing cast you could get really nowadays. Um, the production is design is unbelievable. To, coming on to HBO Max, is it HBO Max? Same day yes. it's been released in the cinema as well. So obviously, mm-hmm. also that will help it or not. Uh, it'll affect. It'll help the number of people seeing it, but not the amount of money it makes. Um, that's true. Yeah, it's a shame because that's another amazing classic sci-fi book that's being adapted by Denis Villeneuve, um, hmm. which would hopefully get the same treatment as Twenty Forty Nine, just to make this relatively niche thing become absolutely mainstream and incredible. <laughs> I'm hoping. 
Um, feel as though if anyone could pull it off at the minute, it's him. Yes, he's a... Uh, don't know if I could cite anybody else that could do it. Maybe Del Toro? I think Del Toro could do it. He's done amazing work with Pan's Labyrinth um, and The Shape of Water and these sort of more mainstream weird films, which I'm very glad have found success because they are still weird. And it's such a shame that he wasn't able to make The Hobbit because I think if he had done his career, trajectory would have been so different. He was originally made to, meant to make two Hobbit films um, instead of P.T. Jackson's three. And that would have been so weird and cool and yeah, it's a shame that never panned out. It would have been a lot less stretched out, right? Yes. The, the actual one, I guess. Mm-hmm. So with 2049, obviously uh, Villeneuve, very much to be credited, uh, Roger Deakins, cinematographer, very deserving finally of his Oscar win after something like 12 nominations, finally getting a win Ridiculous. with 2049. Now he's got two, 1970. Yes. Very glad about that. Um, so written by Hampton Fancher, co-writer of the yeah. original, but also Michael Green, who I sort of had a look, a, had a read around. He worked on, in 2017, he wrote Blade Runner 2049, Logan, Alien Covenant, and Murder on the Orient Express, all in 2017. <laughs> wow. Um, he got a lot of work out of nowhere. He got lots of work in that year, so good for him. Uh, it clearly worked out. I love Logan. Actually, that's a, that's, that's a bizarre set of films now that I think about it. I never yeah. saw that version of Murder on the Orient Express, but Alien Covenant is awful, and Logan is amazing. Um, yeah. Murder's sort of near. Well, I knew the story anyway going in, so as mm. a massive Poirot fan, I was was going to compare it to the David Suchet stuff because that's my favourite. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, we're getting off topic a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's just, yeah, it's a bizarre sort of set of work all in one year, quality-wise and genre-wise, and yeah, very true. Nice spread of work that he's getting into, though. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you do much before. Unsure. I think I had mainly mentioned that just because it was such a contrast. I sort of made those made that note in my little notes here just because it was such a mm. interesting set of uh, According to IMDB, he did Green Lantern. Oh yes. Yeah. That's why people were worried when he was signed on to Logan. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So had some misses with Alien and Green Lantern, but yeah. some hits with Logan and Blade Runner. Yeah. Well, Alien is another really Scott franchise and I think his involvement is none too positive anything he's done after 19 when did aliens come out <laughs> anything after that is a yeah. the 85 is it well he didn't even direct it that was james cameron but his his involvement in setting up the first one so i guess actually just the original blade yeah. runner and the original alien so 82 <laughs> uh well no that's not true. Alien was did, 79 i think i mean i'm sort of you know hammering on ridley scott but he did um he did gladiator of course in 2000 which was incredible um, oh yeah. yeah so he's a, he's, he's an extremely established extremely talented filmmaker i would never deny that his impact i think even probably more so with alien than blade runner it's just you can't really doing uh like the first thing that matt damon and ben affleck have wrote really not wrote written together since goodwill hunting he's directing it's called the last jewel i've heard of that project i had no idea really scott was attached i'm sure he's directing it wow okay okay let's hope he can Uh, capture some of the magic of goodwill hunting and alien in one jewelers in fight not Jewelry. Oh, that would be one to look forward to then, yeah. Hey, carry on, Tom. I'll let you flow. Um, well, I just had some sort of comments generally about 2049, how for sort of reiterating on the idea of the first one, how you can tell things about the world and you can sort of inform the audience of how things work 
and make them intrigued without having to just give boring exposition. You know, we don't see the how, the why, the where, like every single detail. But we sort of, you know, because I, th I think that sort of feels artificially complete. It just feels like, oh, we've thrown lots of information, so this is now how it works. If you just infer things and you just kind of suggest things about how the, like how replicants are made, how farming is done, you know, at the start, you see uh, Dave, Dave Bautista's character, Sapper Morton, at the start, you can just sort of get a little sense about how these like grub things are farmed for protein, and you just get like a really cool sense of world building without having to have things explained. Replicants um, have to eat. Yes. Yeah, they are very much biological, even if they are not made by natural birth. Although in twenty forty nine, Rachel <laughs> gives birth. Mm. Well, remember, Martin, they're more human than humans, so they have to eat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think it's mainly I mean by expanding on everything you know that the first film did but making it better in every single way I still think this is mostly a visual effects film I think it's still mostly where it excels I mean I think it's what are we, we are now May 2021 as a recording I still think it's the best looking film ever made by Country Mile actually I agreeing mean, with you on that I don't think I'm trying to think what else would sort of compete against it. Maybe 1917, because that does look good. Very, very difficult. Even the same cinematographer, very difficult to compare, though. They're completely different. But in terms of the way it looks, it's, it's incredible. Like, watching it again for the second time last weekend, it's just some of the shots and some of the way the lighting is done. Specific scenes when he's walking down the steps and it's going dark behind him as the light's coming through and in um in just think wow Neand in Neander Wallace's sort of pyramid setup in the in the data archives when there's like sort of water ripples reflected onto the ceilings yes. and he's, yeah that's yeah so cool um, but that yeah, yeah what, that that's what kind of that the, shot so cool yeah that that sort of all plays into the production design and sort of how it's also cohesive like you can sometimes have awful looking sets that are shot really nicely or you can have really nice shots of you know really lame you know props and stuff but by making everything so cohesive like it's so it just sort of blows my mind that the films are ever this good so many moving parts have to come together in such an amazing way um like i, I was reading about the visual effects houses and just the the amount of work that they do and it's not just all done in a computer i think people think that this system somehow just generates cgi just by inputting parameters or something but no it's all it's definitely it's it's absolutely an art form, and it's so complicated how they produce these amazing shots. I mean, it's yeah, Weta Workshop. Do you guys know Weta Digital? That's Peter Jackson's visual effects company. Are you guys aware of them? I do not know. So he 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 founded them back in the nineties for Heavenly Creatures, some of his early horror stuff. But they basically became mainstream from Lord of the Rings, and all of their work was amazing. They you know made thousands of um, like chainmail plates and real swords and all that stuff and all those special effects but also combined with the visual effects so they did you know all the amazing green uh, green screen and animation work so that Gollum you know running around in water or whatever in Lord of the Rings could be look so realistic for a film made 20 years ago now because they just literally go through frame by frame animate every water droplet and just do this tedious work that no one else will do and no one else knew how to do because they invented the technology so yeah, basically Weta Workshop they are amazing and they did lots of the miniatures for this. So all those shots flying through the city in Blade Runner 2049, they're all these giant miniatures. They're called bigatures. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, we have a... Pokemon, though. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, if you guys have the ability to link stuff in the description, I would suggest listeners to check out a little video. The first of the link, it'll be labeled something like Wetter Bigatures. It's, um, it's a video <laughs> showcasing some of their work yeah. with creating these amazing scenes. And then it's, you can walk through these cities that they make. And it's obviously not, you know, to scale. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. But by, by sort of using these really precise camera movements and being able to sort of fly through these miniatures, you get the sense of scale so accurate. It's and then obviously, perspective things like in Lord of the Rings. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then you really sell the effect by enhancing it with little bits of CGI, just a few flying cars, a few people way down below, and you suddenly understand the scale of it. Because that, that human perspective is what you know people relate to, and that's how you can really sell the perspective of these giant skyscrapers. Um, so, yeah, it's amazing work. There's one called MPC, which stands for Motion Picture Company. So they're based in the UK. Um, and they were nominated for a VES award, which is a Visual Effects Society award. Uh, and the category was Outstanding Animated Character in a Photoreal Feature. So basically, specifically for Rachel. Because the way wow. they, re they recreated her was unbelievable. I mean, I'm not sure if you guys agree, but that scene, when they bring her out, I mean, apparently they oh, had... uncannily similar. I know. It's... Well, I think it, to me, it was maybe the first time ever it... it it fell into the uncanny valley and then came back out, and it looked yeah. photoreal. Um, yeah, and, and like the bringing them back in Star Wars with Princess Tarkin. Leia and Tarkin. Yes, unfortunately that falls, and also Luke Skywalker in Mandalorian season two. Unfortunately, yeah. it um, yeah. falls yeah. on its face in terms of falling into the uncanny valley because it. You know, I'm not sure if you guys know the theory behind what that means. It's basically where it looks too similar but just different enough. Yeah. It's off-putting. Yeah, it's just off, but by by it's like annoying. animating the exact pores and the exact sort of little bits of sweat or the tiny micro movements of a face, because that's what really people identify with. It's it's the yeah. facial animations that really make people connect to CGI characters, and so by really focusing on that, they can hundred percent nailed it. Um, apparently, they they had showed Denny the I call him Denny like he's on first name terms. They showed <laughs> the director. Denis Villeneuve, they, they showed him recreations of Rachel in CGI placed into footage of the original Blade Runner to see if he could tell the difference. This was sort of their test to see if they were worthy of doing it. And he couldn't tell which ones were CGI and which ones were original footage. And so they were then hired to make the, the photoreal Rachel for 2049. That's an incredible way of testing it. Yeah. yeah. Very stressful. As they showed him the same thing twice. Yeah. Mess with him. This is yeah. how good we can do it. <laughs> it's like the scene from The Office where Pam the same uh, shows, uh, shows oh, Creed yeah. the same picture. It's like spot five differences or whatever and then cuts to her in the interview saying they're the same picture. It's yeah. just that. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, the production, sort of the entire production of the film is just, I don't know. The... The main production designer is called Dennis Gassner. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it, but he's got seven Oscar nominations. So it works on a very oh. sort of... So most of the modern Bond films. Uh, Blade Runner 2049, he did 1917 as well. And then he did some sort of a funny selection of mid-2000s stuff. He did Big Fish, Road to Perdition, and The Golden Compass. Three, three very different films there. But if you think about them, all with pretty amazing production design, if you think about them. Some, yeah, of, the, yeah. some of the sets and the art direction and the... Uh, just visually great. It's got a brilliant portfolio, then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
So this guy, he's um, he was the main production designer, and he killed it. Um, so um, I guess we'll open up into kind of thoughts about the film overall, and yeah, I mean, I love it. I'm not sure if you guys want to want to go yeah, into it. I'm entirely in the same boat now. I think when I watched it first time around, um, I really wish I'd seen it in the cinema. I'm kind of jealous in a way that you went to the cinema and got to see it before I was even introduced to what Blade Runner was. I just know mm-hmm. that on the big screen would look insane. Um, I am blown away with it, whether I'm watching it on a TV or a laptop now. Um, it's way more investigative than original. We talked yes. about that. Mm, yes. bit. Um, yeah. Spend pretty much two hours of him investigating. And I think we meet Harrison Ford with about 45 minutes left. Yeah. And it gets a little bit more action-y. But even so, it's still still the same cool. movie with a noir esque feel. Yeah, definitely. I, I to me, I I love the fact that it takes what people think they know about Blade Runner and just completely it enhances them, but also switches them around. So literally straight away, there is not going to be any annoying. You know, is K is Ryan Gosling a replicant? Straight away, we know. Okay, he's a replicant, and he's hired to kill other replicants. Got it. It's like I just love when a film knows its audience so well and knows what people expect of it to such an extent that they can just immediately get that out of the way and then tell its own story in its own way. Honestly, um, when they when they first like confirmed that he was a replicant, my first thought was, "Oh, are they going to do a thing where like he thinks he's a replicant?" And then they started going down that path, and I was like, "No, this this isn't supposed to happen." <laughs> and then it didn't. Do you? Do both feel the same way when I first saw it that I felt as though he was going to be the hidden son? Yeah, because they really like threw all the info at you that he was the child, but then yes. they also threw all the info at you that nothing was as it seemed in regards to that. So yeah, it, was, I think, it was a good plot twist, yeah. Absolutely. I think that, that structure is so intentional. I think they purposely set it up so that everyone is on board with the idea that he will find out more and more that he is the false that uh, he, he he is the son but then yeah. as you go through I, I i love the whole false savior idea where yeah. someone thinks that they've come to sort of help a situation or they're the chosen one or anything and then it's switched around and they're just they're just an everyman because that makes them so much more yeah. compelling like the and idea of a chosen one is so, as long as they believe yeah i think i think if you have like some sort of chosen one it it i think it works for fantasy it works when you have some sort of heroic protagonist that kind of saves the day but this this is so much more grounded and it's 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 about learning that you know you there is no one answer to these kind of issues these kind of world-changing events that replicants can now give birth yeah Um, and i like how that like blurs the line even more between replicant and human the fact that they technically know not told too much about it no they don't go into it much but i guess they can't really yeah, we just know that Rachel's bones from the analysis of that that she um that she had died in childbirth, mm-hmm. and then through further analysis they find the little serial number <laughs> to suggest her bones are fake. I.e., she's a replicant. Um, I love that reveal. So well done. Yeah. yeah, I was not expecting that at all. I was like, is this just some random person that Sapper Morton's killed, mm-hmm. or is he like protecting them or something, or maybe he fell in love with a human? But no. I like how. K is such a he isn't some emotionally disconnected like 
cynical Harrison Ford Deckard type, where it's just a more cliche detective story. You know, as there's a guy brought back into the force, they so easily could have done that and mirrored the original. And there's no cliche like femme fatale character. The, the, there is no equivalent of Rachel where he has to try and, you know, someone's brought him into this whole investigation and then he falls in love with her by the end or anything. It completely turns all of that on its head. Um, I think that's something that Star Wars struggles with in terms of repeating themes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, um, and I think by by changing that around, I, I think it makes it so much more engaging to watch by having you know a completely differently structured film as a as a sequel. I think it's one of the best sort of modern sequels. It, it just makes the original way better and more fun to watch, knowing things about twenty forty nine, which I think not normally normally sequels make the originals kind of feel a bit worse or a bit pointless, or you know, or well, they completely nullify them. Undo them, yeah. I think it just makes it so much more compelling, which is such an achievement. Um, Two little things. One is more, I know Jamie has a really good question, so I want him to ask it to Tom. The first thing is, I love how self-contained this is, and I want to relate it to Dr. Sleep, that you can talk about the first two hours of it being almost self-contained in a way, and then the last hour, 45 minutes really does back to the original. Yeah, I haven't yeah. thought about that. How well yeah. that works. Like, Doctor Sleep, I mean, by surprise, how little of it to do with the original and with the Overlook. Yeah, I think that works because by spending that time getting to know these characters and this story and actually getting invested in this conflict or whatever, the, yeah. I, think, I think the payoffs of tying it back to the original make it make, are so much more fun and mm. meaningful when you know the characters. I think if you, just, if you just open up with endless references to the original, you become like, okay, we're just going through the motions of trying to copy the original and it's a bit sort of fake feeling. But by making a true story, a sort of a self-contained film, and then tying things in, it's uh yeah, it makes I think I think it all makes it feel a lot more genuine. I think the yeah. um, first example of the former that comes to mind is The Incredibles 2. It references mm. the original so many times that I just thought it was pretty much just a remake. I didn't like it. It was a well-made movie, but I just didn't like that it was pretty much the same movie again. I'm sort of in that camp. I, I think I agree. Um, very well-made. but um, yeah. Enjoy it mm. as an adventure. But it could have been different. I do feel with 2049 and Doctor Sleep, trying to get us invested in a completely sort of new story for two hours is so difficult to do, and the way they've pulled it off in both insane before we can get back to that sort of nostalgic like with dr sleep when you go back to the overlook it feels so nostalgic because you get the scene of like driving up and you get the music and then you get there and you already know from the original the layout of the hotel you know yeah, where everything yeah. is and everything and it's just insane that's that's such a strength of the original how you could like geographically place yourself in each scene it's like parasite you just know the house inside out, the downstairs yeah, of the yeah, house. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, that's a lot more realistic in that sense, yeah. Yeah, it grounds the, grounds the audience in each scene. It makes it it's such a more compelling atmosphere. I think lots of horror films try to do that, and I think quite a few succeed. But yeah, I think The Shining is the gold standard for understanding your, your surroundings and the mechanics of what works, because there's no complicated monster. It's just Jack mm-hmm. being mad. So there's no, like... Yeah, there's or a... is it? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Because I'm sure there's some theories out there been possessed by a ghost of the past or something. Oh, many, yeah. The film we were talking about, um, the award season one, when we were talking about Promising Young Woman for an Eternity, I talked about the French film Revenge to Jamie, um, directed by, I think, Coralie Fajar, and how well you can visualize part of the house in that film towards the end. So there's a scene towards the end. Um, similar premise in that it's a rape, revenge, sexual assault story. Um, it's a lot more brutal, but when she comes back to this sort of villa in the middle of nowhere, she's essentially having this one-on-one fight around... So essentially between the living room, the big lounge, like a corridor, and it's in like a big rectangle, and she's just chasing the final guy, and they're both sort of limping or whatever, and it gets really messy and brutal, but the way you can visualize where exactly they are in that rectangle as they're going around is really cool. Hmm. It's sort of like panic-inducing, because you think one's getting closer to the other, and then they might change direction or something and go back the other way way that film can do that to make you know exactly where they are in relation to other things. Yeah, yeah. Green Room from 2015 is the same. Have you guys seen Green yeah. Room? Anton Yelton said it, Patrick Stewart's briefly in it. It's an awesome little, very, very small scale. Yeah, no. Um, no. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, anyway, um, Jamie, has a, yeah, Jamie oh, yeah. has a really Does good it? question. Yes. yes. So after the first one, like ignoring 2049, did you think that Deckard was a replicant at that time? After watching the final cut, so like going into 2049 in the cinema, basically, like after having seen the first one but not knowing what happens in the second. Yeah. Um, based on the based on the final cut, yes, because that that is definitely the stance that that film takes. I think by by having that unicorn scene in there. And by implying, well, basically confirming that Gaff understands what going, what is going on inside um, Deckard's head, it, that film basically confirms that he is. Um, yeah. So the answer is yes, basically. Um, and then how did your opinion change after watching 2049, if it changed? To be honest, I enjoy the fact that it wasn't a continuation of that discussion, because I feel like that is the most... I feel like that kind of that's sort of what's damaging to discussion about the first one and some people's opinion of it, because I feel like the discussion of whether or not something of whether or not a certain thing is true is way sort of less important in terms of you know the effect of the film than than like its thematic stuff. You know everything about Roy wanting to become more human. I think that's what really makes that film iconic. I think yeah. the discussion of Deckard himself being a replicant, I think, harms discussion of the original. Um, so I think I'm not. I'm, I wouldn't say it changed necessarily after watching 2049, but I would say that um, I would say that basically I'm glad that the film didn't really deal with it. So yeah, I would say it didn't yeah. change. Um, okay. I'd quite like to just like mention there was a I think it was a screening of 2049 and Billy Scott and Villeneuve were in the room together, or whatever. And they did like a little interviewy thing. And they're okay. like, right, we're going to bring up the whole age old debate. Like, we've just seen 2049 or whatever. Decker the Replicant and stuff. And Ridley Scott was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Final Cut, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And they got to the. And he said, he was like, I, I wouldn't say he's brave, but the stance that he took, he says, I don't think it's as clear cut as that. And I don't think it should be. Yes. Mm. 
to like say that obviously with Ridley Scott in the room. And it's yeah. not saying it doesn't matter whether he is or not. It should be ambiguous, and it should be up to us essentially. I think that's a great that's answer. Ridiculous. Because I think yeah. him, him him suggesting that it doesn't really matter is him saying he understands the original more than Ridley Scott understands his own film, which I I think is a is a very big thing. Ridley Scott thinking that Deckard being a replicant or not is so much less interesting than everything else in that film, and I think Denny understands that. Um, that's a that's a good answer. Um, I haven't seen that. I'll have to watch that. I'll try and try and link it to you or something. Jamie also has <laughs> that wasn't the question I was expecting you to ask, Jamie. Oh. I was expecting you to ask your question about Joy. Oh yeah, what was the purpose behind her character? Because it was cool to see from a world building perspective that technology had advanced enough that you could have like a holographic wife with such advanced AI that it's pretty much a normal person. Hmm. Like other than that, what 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 did she do? In terms of the mechanics of the plot, very little. But yeah. I think thematically for Kay, I think she's like completely central. I think this is part of the genius of the design of it. I think that I, w- I was, I was going to bring this up anyway, so I'm, I'm very glad you mentioned it. I think that um, that sounds so fake, like this was planned, but literally I'm so glad you mentioned that. Um, yeah. It sounds like a really like cliche setup. Oh, so what do you think? No, but this is absolutely what I was going to talk about. So I like how it's so depressing. Like all of Kay's world is built around like oppression. You see all the like graffiti on his wall people calling him skin job like everyone in the in the police force don't think he's a real blade runner you know yeah lieutenant joshi just sort of orders him around like he's just like a you know a slave which replicants have been historically you know i think that that represents like a little place where he can play you know man of the house by having joy there even though she's fake and he knows that she's a product he can sort of live out this idea that he can be real or a human in his own world. He doesn't have to worry about sort of the outside oppression of this bleak society, you know? Yeah. Um, My assumption was it was to make him feel more human by yes. having relationships. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. yeah, definitely. I would say that's, that's like central. Like if you think about the actual like intricacies of that relationship, it's pretty messed up and sad. Um, mm. Like how... with her a lot. Yeah, there's a lot. I was going to get into that. There's a lot of her... Um, similarity um it, it just that that relationship between Kay and joy it feels like really fake and sad when you like see the corporate little sort of influence like when she's cycling through dresses and he can like pick and choose a certain product yeah. and then the wallace corporation learns about him and they can adjust his like they can adjust joy's emotions based on what he's feeling it all feels so fake and it's really messed up and like sad or um, even the uh, billboard near the end of the movie where yeah of course the ad, like the tagline is, have them say what you want to hear. Have them exactly, exactly. Want them to look like. But the thing is, I think up until then, it's it's very real for him. Like he gets to play the little man of the house scenario, and he can sort of pretend he's human. Um, I think yeah, that that moment when the little emanator is destroyed and she dies, it's almost like a, as Martin said, it's like a more messed up version of the word uh, of the of the film. Her, it's like um. Yeah, because with her, you've got the very... Um, have, have you seen the film Her, Jamie? No, I have not. Oh, I feel no, like we... To a lot of, have you seen these movies? This is no... I've never seen a lot of movies. <laughs> I feel like I can't spoil. There is a really, like, beautiful scene. It's a really, like... The way it's done with how Joy sort of syncs up with the real human prostitute, you know, so that Kay can experience that real yeah. intimacy. It's such, like, a 
awesome. I mean, from a technical standpoint, it's an amazing achievement that you can literally sync up those two performances and make it look visually engaging and not just a mess. And that's another it's... one of those things that I just don't want to know how they did it. I want to leave yeah. it magic. Yeah, absolutely. The movie magic. Yeah. There's a very, in a sense, there's a very similar scene in her where Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with his AI, who's just a voice, Scarlett Johansson. There's a very kind of similar setup. Um, yeah. But the difference with her, her is a very optimistic future. There's lots of bright colors and like wooden textures and everything's happy and everyone's, for the most part, pretty satisfied, whereas Blade Runner is just bleak and oppressive and, you know, um, there's some lots of interesting contrast there, actually. I should... I'm sure there's some video essay on YouTube analyzing the differences. <laughs> Most likely. I was, I was, like, the biggest regret with her from a recognition point of view is Scarlett Johansson's performance is so good. I kind of wish she'd get, I wish she had been nominated like Best Supporting mm. Actress, even though we never see her. That would have been quite a breakthrough for the Academy. I don't think they were ready for that. <laughs> um, I agree, though. It was very good. Yeah, it was basically a voice in, in a live action film. It was a voice acting performance. Yeah. Um, She's just an AI character. Ever see her? It's a, like an astonishingly good voice acting performance because of the amount of chemistry and emotion she can convey. Oh yeah, it's really hard to be a good. You have to be able to convey so much just through voice. You can't do any mm-hmm. visual stuff. But on the um, on the topic of joy, as a smaller side, I remember. As soon as Ryan Gosling walked into his apartment and you heard the woman calling out, I was like, this is tech, tech future yeah. world. And yeah. If they don't show her immediately, she is not real. I was like, ah, is this just like an Alexa or something? But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The amount of time they don't show her for, like a good, I'd say it's a good minute and a half. Yeah, he's having a conversation, isn't he? And then you finally yeah, understand. Conversation. Yeah. And then she comes mm-hmm. out with the food. And I love how it's like steak and chips. Classic. Oh yeah, literally it's yeah. I love that. It's it's how it's like the oh honey, I'm home. It's the classic American lifestyle from like the fifties, yeah. but set in this yeah. bleak future where it couldn't be further from that. A um, hundred years in the future. Yeah. yeah, I like how tying into the whole thing where I talked about how it's like K is a false savior and how he thinks he's the chosen one, and then it's that sort of switched on him. I think Joy feeling like fake ties into that so well because she's the one who's egging him on she's the one who's like oh you must be the chosen one when he matches up the dna you know when he's being a real blade runner a real investigator when he's matching up the dna and he works out that there were twins born on this date and that he must be one of them um she is telling him you must be chosen i always knew you were special when you know after the fact that it's all completely programmed in and that she is totally fake it's i think that's so much more awesome in terms of just world building how this society has created these products that completely tell you what you want to hear in the most like in in the fakest way possible, um, yeah. almost trying to become a utopia, even though it's a dystopia. Yeah, well, I think that's the idea that these these corporations, the whole capitalism uh, criticism, you know, of these two films, how it's sort of you know, it's these big fake companies that try to sell bad, they they try to sell bad ideas and bad lifestyles to these everyday people, and in the case of Kay, who's literally not even a human. Um, on the topic of um, predicting stuff and that DNA scene, when they showed the whole um, the daughter had died, but the son had survived, I was like, ah, is that really true? And thought the daughter <laughs> was going to end up being the one who actually survived. But I thought it was going to be love in the end. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Imagine that, that of having love be the 
the twins, but nothing else. Yeah, that would have been a really big twist. The uh, I think the I I didn't personally pick up on it watching it for the first time in the cinema, but um, there's a sort of a big clue that when when Kay first learns that the memories are definitely real, because he goes to her, the you know the the dream designer, the real daughter, when he first goes to her. He's like all screaming because he's like, "Oh God, these 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 memories in my head are actually real. I I must be human. Everything is a lie." She is sort of quietly crying because she knows the memories are real because they're hers. Yeah, um, there's sort of a clue there Ooh, early on, but I didn't I didn't catch that in the cinema. Yeah. Um, if I've caught that now, <laughs> I'm pretty know, sure I saw it, but just didn't recognize the significance of it. Like, oh, she's just like I mean, that's like she the... never got to have experiences like this or something. But no, yeah, she did. yeah. Yeah, I mean that's like the definition of you know, with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah, um, that's when a good plot twist is written when you have benefit of hindsight. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think really all of it ties in. I think the characters of joy and love they all tie into. I think the central like theme of the the film is like it sounds cliche, but it's literally about like different forms of love and different avenues of that. So whereas the first film was about Roy trying to become more human through, you know, wreaking havoc and trying to sort of work his way up. The societal ladder to meet his god, I think for Kay. So this time it's actually our protagonist who has the journey. Um, he is the one who sort of, yeah, he's he's sort of exploring different avenues of love. So he has, um, I have to look at my notes here. I'm trying to sound smart. <laughs> um, so there's all this like fakeness and oppression around him, but he's learned that through through learning about the experiences that Deacon and Rachel had, he sort of understands that being fake and not being a human human does not should in no way impact your ability to, you know, do what you want and um, escape your lifestyle and love who you want and all that. Um, and, but I think the main thing is that he, at the end, he was able to sacrifice himself for, a, you know, for a greater cause. Deckard being able to meet his real daughter and Kay being so human that he can understand how important that is and he sacrifices himself for that, I think is the central kind of, I think that's why that's, why that's such a good climax. Because and how they can link that back to Dave Batista at the start. How you've never seen a miracle, of course. Yes, mm-hmm. how you've never seen a miracle. I mean, yeah, it's 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 perfect. It's uh, because obviously Rutger Hauer, Roy Batty, and his speech is talking about all these miracles he's seen. There's like a multi-angled connection to the beginning and end of every film. There, it's uh, it's amazing, and the fact that that can all be done, you know, forty years later, almost in a sequel made by a complete by a completely separate creative team, except for one of the writers. You know, it's just genius. Like the 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 plot and the story hit at the end. They were like a one-two punch. It's like a perfect way to conclude, like the character arcs thematically kind of explore the entire. Because I think lots of films struggle to kind of fully embrace what they're what they're about, and they kind of slightly hint at things and they say, "Oh, we've handled this," but not really. I think Blade Runner is such a complete, like, you know, exploration of what it means to be human and kind of what it means to actually love and experience things. And yeah, so that's why I like it. Definitely. Um, Phil is though tonight I've kept saying like two things because they're just popping into my head as we're talking through different things. Like now, the first one is looking at both films, neither have central villain. Really. Mm-hmm. The first one is Roy the villain, arguably. I'd say like Pris is more of a villain because she's more bad than Roy, in my opinion. Yes. Mm. Um, <laughs> you could even say Tyrell's the villain because he's created this mess. Absolutely, yeah, you could. Uh, and then in the second one, Wallace, we don't see loads of him. Obviously, created this I think, world. 
Yeah, I think people watching the trailers think that. If you watch the trailer, yeah. you think, oh, he's the he's the creepy guy and, he, and he's giving a villain speech. He must be the villain. I think that's what people expect. Jared Leto, but... yeah. 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 You've got yeah, Love, obviously. Yeah. So love's more of a villain than him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, she's... And it, well, in terms yeah. of the screenplay structure, she's the one who goes against Kay's motivations. She's the one actually being antagonistic. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, mean, I guess you could even argue Lieutenant Joshi. You know, she's obviously like sort of kind of good, but the way she treats Kay... Oh yeah, no, she's she's almost as bad as the rest of them in the police department. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That was another one of my first predictions that she was going to be the main villain. Ah, uh, sold down the river. <laughs> yeah. Then my second point is so perfect at the end because of the music tying into what we see on screen. Because in the original, when Roy dies, you get the tears and rain music. And Kay dies on the steps, you also get the tears and rain music. Although it was snow in this. It was sort snow. of yeah. yeah. The sound the score from Zimmer and is it Benjamin um Wallish? I don't know how you say that. I'm not sure. Like Wolfisk. Might be Wolfisk. It's so perfect using the tears and rain motif for when Kay dies. Obviously, both replicants. Well, Roy expired and Kay died. But it's almost as though arcs are complete. It is time to die. Yeah, I think both of them. Yeah, definitely. So emotional. So yeah, tying in with the idea that both Roy and Kay complete their arcs at the end with the Tears of Rain scene. I like the idea, and I've just thought of it now, to be completely honest. um, Where Roy is talking about how moments are lost in time, you know, like Tears in Rain. Kay dies in the snow, and the, I think that snow sort of being crisp and falling, sort of unmuffling everything, it almost makes it seem like those are not being lost because the snow obviously will melt eventually. But the settles. idea that yeah, yeah the, the idea that the snow settles these perfect little snowflakes, which represent each sort of memory, you know, each experience, each lived experience, the idea that they settle, I think, makes it makes it. I think that's what contrasts Roy and Kay. How Kay is having a lasting impact by providing Deckard the connection with his daughter that, that, that he was um, denied. Whereas Roy is a psycho and his methods are bad and he is the villain, even if he has yeah. this sort of protagonist arc. So I, th- I, I think this race, yeah. the rain-snow contrast is really interesting. And obviously, yeah, obviously the, the, the use of the music is just so perfect. I remember that, that moment in the cinema was unforgettable. It was, yeah, it was great. Another thing linking the two is that they're both the replicants that die while Harrison Ford survives. Yeah, he's just lucky. He always gets always gets out of, always gets out of it alive, doesn't he? He's, oh, a, yeah. <laughs> he's a jammy one. What do you think? 49, happy ending, yes or no? Yes. Yes. You're saying that for... Oh, easy question. For Deckard, yes. For Cade, maybe not, but his journey's come to an end. Even for Kay, I'd say yes. Yes, I would. I felt like he had a sense of purpose after. Exactly. That's. I think that, that that's the crux of it. Having a sense of purpose and completing that, like perfectly. Um, there's there's a couple things I wanted to mention. Just some really cool visual stuff. So one of them was just a cool moment that I thought you've, I've never seen anything like that in any other film. Like having when when he flies to the sort of trash mesa to try and find the orphanage, um, and he's flying and this these like. Uh, this like sort of what are they called like the bandits I guess 
they shoot a grappling gun with mm. a kite attached to it in a thunderstorm so that the lightning short circuits his flying car. I mean, how awesome is that as a sentence? He got his very cool. Edison. Yeah. <laughs> it's just such like, an awesome concept executed yeah. in such a satisfying... It's just like, how do you even think of that? It's such an inventive, cool sci-fi yeah. concept that you don't have to explain. That in real life. I know. <laughs> think that would have been a stepping stone before we got, like, anti-aircraft cannons and stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like how, because in Star Wars or something, you'd have on the Star Wars wiki, you know, who was the here was the contractor who made that gun? This is the fabric that the kite is made out of. Like that's not interesting. Yeah, yeah. What what we like is the cool design choices that go into this kind of stuff, yeah. you know. Um, and another one is a really cool visual metaphor that I enjoyed. How as Deckard, Kay, and Love are uh, battling it out in the uh, in the in the water, and you know next to that giant uh, reservoir. Yeah, the way they sort of climb out of the water, very sort of. Reminiscent of how you know life began on Earth, climbing out of the water after after those experiences, love failed, she drowned, whereas the strongest survive, Kay and Deckard crawled out and became more than themselves. You know, it's such a just smart stuff that I've heard other other people talk about about the film, and it's just really resonated. It's such a it's so well done. It's kind of those sort of themes are hidden in there. If you want to see them, you'll see them. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't yeah, draw right. attention to that stuff necessarily, but it's um, yeah. it is there and it's definitely intentional. Um, yeah, definitely. On the topic of that, um, like lightning kite scene, as soon as um, as soon as Kay was flying in and it started raining because of the first movie being raining the whole time, I was like, "Oh, this is where Dick." <laughs> yeah, but no, it was for that cool visual of the lightning kite. Decker just has a perpetual thunderstorm around him. Yeah, <laughs> he's that <laughs> that depressed that so he's literally got a rain cloud above him. Yeah. <laughs> At all times. Well, are these two, uh, is it two like niche things you have about random trivia, Jamie? Oh, yeah, it's just um, facts about actors that are in the movie. Like we were discussing about earlier with David Dasmalshian. Mm. He's in the movie as Coco the Scientist slash Dr. Dude who discovers the code on the bones. And he's been in quite a lot of minor roles, and he's in a very minor role in this just stand out to me he's quite a good actor even though he's in minor roles he's great he's in um upcoming the suicide squad the james gunn suicide squad film he's playing polka dot man which is a hilariously obscure bizarre dc <laughs> dc comics villain that sounds um, like you know what that sounds like you know in the lego batman movie when the joker's running through all random villains that he has and then he comes to like the condiment king who just runs yeah. a pet shop and stuff yeah. and then you yeah. under man yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a massive assortment of wacky characters. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's what? David Dasmelshin's, um third DC thing, technically, then. Because he was in The Dark Knight and, um, and Gotham. Yes. Yeah. And his second Villanova project, he was in Prisoners as a very creepy guy who keeps some snakes. That scene is so creepy. Every time those boxes open. Jamie's seen it as well, actually. I watched it with Jamie. That scene. Oh, oh my gosh! Fantastic when he opens film. that box and the snakes hiss, oh! It's my second favorite Denis film, and it was my favorite until I saw 2049. Um, Have you seen Incendies yet? Because I haven't. Not. That's the one I'm missing. I'm afraid that could be the one. Yeah, <laughs> it could be. Enemy with Jake Gyllenhaal is great. It's a controversial ending that people kind of slightly get turned off by, but I think the whole concept is awesome. I try not to read anything about it. 
yeah, Enemy is a great one. Did the same year as Prisoners. Um, <laughs> yeah, that guy's he's a he's a very popular in Hollywood right now. I think he's going to make some pretty amazing stuff. And given his track record so far, probably will be. Yeah. And the other one was um, Mr. Cotton, the owner of the orphanage, played by Lenny James. He played Morgan in The Walking Dead. He, and Morgan was also a slightly unhinged crazy man in that too. So He's also cool. in... Parallels. He was also in season one of Line of Duty. He played... So like every season of Line of Duty, there's usually one famous person you'll sort of recognize and they're sort of central to the story of that season. I don't think if I picked up it was him. Yeah. Very cool. Two actors that are probably not very well known at all and very good at their job. And then I guess Martin probably also wants me to mention my actor facts for the first Blade Runner. Is. <laughs> where uh, Rutger Hauer and J.F. Sebastian's actor William Sanderson both appeared in a TV show, one of my favorite TV shows called True Blood, though not alongside each other. I did not realize they were in True Blood. I've, I know of the show. I had no idea. If you've seen it, you'd probably recognize Sanderson's voice immediately because he's Sheriff right. Dearborn. He's got mm. a very iconic voice, in my opinion. And then um, Rick Howard also took over the mantle of Master Xehanort in Kingdom Hearts 3 main villain after oh. Leonard Nimoy he took up the mantle from Leonard Nimoy and then even more like famous actor stuff Christopher Lloyd took over from Rutger Hauer wow, that's Lloyd cool. being Dr. Brown yeah those are three very different types of actors oh yeah all voicing the same character wow just fun little niche stuff though very niche but yeah. we love it no. But I could offer you the question of you could choose any of the characters from the original or 2049. Who would you choose and why would it be love? Choose in what sense? Uh, either your favorite or the one that you would most like to be. Definitely James Hong's character in the first one, being in a frozen room working on eyeballs. But Does James assuming... Hong play. Kung Fu Panda's dad. Yeah, James Hong is a massive actor. He's been in so much stuff, but yeah, he's Poe's dad in Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> I'm, I'm shocking. I would probably have to go with not Jeff Sebastian. He lives such a sorry existence, making those creepy little dolls. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank <yeah>. you. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think maybe up until they leave, um, Deckard's dog in Vegas. Lived a pretty cool life. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> you think that dog's real or not? Because in the book and everything, everybody is craving to get real animals, but they're dreaming of electric versions of things like electric sheep or artificially made owls or whatever. There is a dog. I don't even think the movie knows because, I mean, Kay asked uh, Decker exactly. if the dog was real, and Decker goes, Ask him. I don't know. Exactly. The film knows. I think that that is a central question that anyone has as soon as um, as soon as a dog shows up or any sort of animal. I reckon it's so I think fake. Probably, based on the sort of mechanics of the world. But I like to imagine that he's somehow on a, come across one of the last real surviving animals. I think that's quite a cool idea. I think um, it would be yeah. real. Because oh. it looked quite shaggy. Like it hadn't been uh, 
groomed in a while or anything. That's what they want you to think. <laughs> um, any reason I ask is in the book, um, they talk about replicants ever own animals. And I think the answer that was given is that as an answer said, they only ever knew of two because replicants really struggle, or androids in the book, really struggle to maintain the welfare of them. They just sort mm -hmm. of, because they don't look after them enough. Um, maybe mm. you could argue if the replicant, well, then, it could be Zora real. in the movie, the snake. Although I don't think she technically owned it. Um, Is the snake real or not? Is, um, it wasn't a real snake. It's just things like that which I find quite interesting. Oh yeah, mm. subtle world building as opposed to giving mm. details for everything. Kind of yeah, definitely. I think for me, Love is just such a great character. Yeah, she is. Oh, she yeah. sort of embodies the entire struggle of the world against K, and she's literally called Love. Like I was saying, how the central idea is called is 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 about how love is something that they think is that. You know, it's something that the world thinks replicants should not have or cannot have. Mm. And she literally represents the entire world being against that idea. And she's literally called love, love oppressing him down. Um, yeah. Although spell L-U-V because that's how, that's the accent that Jared Leto's character had. Yeah. It'll be too obvious otherwise they have to make it slightly less obvious. Yeah. 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 I did like at the very end where she... Um, what is it? Seems to be winning the fight against K, and then goes, "See, I am better." Mm. Really, just like personifies her whole thing. Yeah, I think it's a. Uh... Yeah, I think those those in in both films, those replicants that have questionable methods, that's what they're trying to prove that they're somehow better than humans. Whereas mm. I think those that we relate to more, Rachel and K, or at least you know, those ones that are presented as being good, their their intentions are more. Please just accept me as being real, even though I wasn't made by some god or you know natural biological birth. Yeah, I'm just I'm, I'm just as real. Um, so I think that's how you sort of contrast the good from the bad in these films. Um, I don't know why that's just reminded me. Like, there's a similarity between that and um, Jurassic Park, uh, not Jurassic Park, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, because um, what is it, M Maisie Lockwood? I think her name is. She's she ends up being a clone or something. So. She has an oh. entire existential crisis of like, do I need to exist? Yeah, that whole, I think there's almost like a bog standard for any project or any kind of, you know, story dealing with robots is always going to, at some point, you know, try to at least explore the question, what does it mean to be human? But I think, you know, Westworld, I think series one explored that quite well. And by all accounts, series two and three are entertaining, but kind of get complicated and get messy in some of its execution. I think Blade Runner 2049 is the best expression, far better than the original, because mm. it, 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 it explores all the nuances in such a, in such a better way. I, I don't know. It's um, just very comprehensive, I'll say. It's just, really just accessible. Down. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not, not massively confusing. Like Westworld will mess with you. Yeah, I think that's part of its, Constantly. Like, part of its appeal, almost part of its character is that, you know, that show will be hard to understand. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, yeah, yeah but I think Blade is trying to be pretentious or anything. Mm. Yeah, another example of um, playing with robots and all that stuff is iRobot with Will Smith. Oh yes, of course, yeah, yeah. 
that does it quite well with Sunny being like a more advanced one that is more or less human. Mm. So interesting thought topic, I guess. Yeah, I think it's something that the uh, that the two films handle in different ways, both extremely well. But I think that's where Twenty Forty Nine has the edge. Oh yeah. Also, just in terms of the whole art direction, the whole production design, just the the subtlety of some of the performances. I think there's some very bizarre performances, like when in in the original, when Deckard goes to meet Zora, and he's putting on some bizarre like reporter voice where he's trying to go, "Oh, I'm a guy from the magazine," and he has this bizarre yeah, voice yeah. that he's trying to put on this act. And as as Martin rightly pointed out, why? She doesn't know who he is. He, he, why does he have to use a fake voice? He's not trying to disguise. Yeah. It's bizarre. Because he's <laughs> out of his job, as he said. He's trying Absolutely, to yes. maintain anonymity. For no, no reason. He's a bad Blade Runner. Yes, he is. Um, <laughs> Don't look around that. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's a nice closing thought. The idea that the two films have the same themes in very different ways and that the first, the, uh, the sequel makes the, the original better in every way, which is rare for a sequel. Yes, definitely. All right, after all that, should we score it? Let's do it. I think for me, it would go for a uh, 7.5 out of 10 entertainment, 8.5 critical. It's very good watch. Visuals are insane, as you guys have mentioned. Overall, just incredible movie. I think for me... Before, I used to rate it like an 8 out of 10, but now it's gone up to a 10 out of 10 and one of my four favourite films. Um, so clearly on every rewatch, it's got better. Yeah. Three times now. Um, entertainment. I do find it really fun, and I love how the pacing is quite faithful to the original, that it doesn't mind, because it's exploring big topics, big worlds, to be... Not slow, but take that sort of editing process where it's not quick. So you expect in modern films for editing to be pretty quick, like shot, shot, different shots. Whereas older films, it's a lot slower. Especially, especially for one that's uh, marketed as being an action movie. Mm, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, so for me, it's a big mistake. <laughs> yeah. Entertainment wise, I'd give it easily a nine and critically a 10. Um, now see why it's so perfect. I do love it. Mm. Thoughts? I mean, I have a very boring answer. It's probably my favorite or joint favorite film of all time. And so I will, I'll give it two tens. Because I think for me, after having seen it so many times now, it's the entertainment value for me is now based on how deep it is and how much you can read into sort of, sort of the subtext. And that's becoming so entertaining for me that it's almost like by, by definition now a 10 for both. So perfect score for me. Um, I definitely think now that we've had this discussion and we mentioned all this stuff, I'll need to rewatch them soon so I can mm. see all Take this tomorrow. stuff. Tomorrow, or when you get up, just a <laughs> quick ah, rewatch. Of course, I don't have time. Almost three AM, by the way. Fully we listening. Yeah. <laughs> very responsible time management, but there we go. Oh yeah, yeah very true. It's probably our longest yet, isn't it? Oh, definitely. Gone past two and a half hours, so. So thank you for sticking around this long, listening to us. <laughs> if you have, yeah. <laughs> you could have watched 2049, but instead you've tuned in to <laughs> talk about both of them. As long as the movie. You could have watched Promising <laughs> a Woman and a Half. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Cadbury's like, a glass and a half, but Promising a Woman, and a, a woman and a Half in every episode. 
in every pod. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. Yeah. So, uh, thank you all for listening for two hours and fifty minutes odd. <laughs> yeah. We're approaching end game length. Yeah, oh, we actually are. Oh my word. We'll hit, we'll hit end game, then we'll hit like the deer hunter, and then we'll be into sort of parts of Arabia, going into once upon a time in America, and then yeah. gone with the wind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If any of you are thinking of rewatching it now that we've discussed it and want to send in any reviews for us to cover later, feel free to do so with the email yeah. that's in the podcast description. Yeah, and we'll pop into the description the couple of videos that Tom mentioned if you'd like to check those out too. Indeed. Um, yeah, we're on all major podcasting platforms now. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Radio Public. Um, literally much everywhere. Um, yeah, we're spreading. <laughs> but that makes it sound bad. Oh, no, I realize I went for spreading our wings. <laughs> like a parasite. <laughs> yeah. A virus. But a good one because it's discussing movies. Haha. <laughs> yes. We haven't actually decided what the next episode is going to be on. So if you want to send in any suggestions for us, let it's a us good know. Way that, yeah. I was going to put it on Tom. Right. I was going to be like, Tom, what do you think it should be on? <laughs> yeah. The Bad Batch episode one. Yeah, that we... means I've got to watch like 90 episodes. No, not about 70 episodes of Clone Wars. <laughs> and just for context for episode one, you'll also need to watch the entirety of Rebel. Yes, kind of. <laughs> oh. oh. Have to do it's that. worth it. At least three seasons of it, I think. Okay. Um, when my exams finish, I'll get onto them all. <laughs> you got to get busy. Mm, very true. And oh, yeah, we could do a Star Wars centered one we could do a disney centered one and bring shivani on to talk we could do Coraline because we watched Coraline recently i've heard the two of you were maybe planning on doing a um citizen kane mank double feature yes we'd love to have you back oh thank you well now we've had a guest on it works well actually yeah the first of many Yes, you are the you are patient zero. Yeah. <laughs> Paving the way for others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you crawled so others could walk. Yeah, yeah I did. Well, <laughs> you ran because you carried this entire topic, so you yeah. ran so others could walk. Better lie down and rest that back of yours. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I was dead running so others could blade crawl. <laughs> That's the only times. It's like devolution. <laughs> You're like the peak of your game, and it's only evolving. Only going to get worse. <laughs> <laughs> I ran so you could crawl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess that brings us to the end. True. So, Tom, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Us, and <laughs> we love your love of Blade Runner. I love my love of Blade Runner. I love that you got me to watch both Blade Runners. <laughs> Worthwhile. I'm glad. I don't know how to end this. Yeah, have to edit we need this tiny bit. Yeah. Closing jingle or something, maybe. Just be like, thanks for watching, and then it'll just cut. I think people expect a grand outro. Um... Do 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 do.
<laughs> the countdown thing. This is the longest countdown timer, three <laughs> hours long. <laughs> and I've only still got a four-letter word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I've got a uh, seven-letter word. It's a uh, coppola. Yes. Oh, we could bring back. Yeah, if you have any suggestions on more Coppola or not Coppola related games using different family trees, please let us family know. Trees, yeah. If you if you happen to have a family tree that includes a lot of actors, then <laughs> send it in. We want to know. Used Ancestry dot com recently and found out you've related Clooney. Let us know. <laughs> That's like a thing you get on a live stream where you can't edit it out, except this is pre-recorded, so you still chose to keep it in. <laughs> it was a conscious decision to keep this content in. Authentic as possible, you know. <laughs> we really need to say thanks for listening and just crank well, out the server. You said that before we got onto the whole uh, submitting reviews. And I was thinking, by the way, should we actually not link the videos I talked about and just link Anthony Hopkins dancing meme? Um, <laughs> I love that thumbnail of his theme. <laughs> He's so happy. <laughs> He's so happy. I'm stick lol. Well, that's kind of a dead meme, but you know. Kins rolled. Yeah. It's probably about time I made Craig leave now. So. <laughs> right. Jamie, you say thanks for listening. And the both of us, or the two of us, even, I'll say bye. Yep, so thanks again for listening. Like, subscribe, tell your friends about us, spread the word. <laughs> Goodbye. We can't end with that. No, we can't. Do that again. Oh, do it again. Bye. It's like say it's bye from me, and it's oh, that's really cringy. Why does this one person say thanks for listening? I don't think we need, all all of us need to say bye. Yeah, I can go for a locker. So thanks for listening. Like, subscribe, friends, all about it. Spread the word. I cut out. That's cutting out. Cut out a lot. I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Go again, go again. Attempt three. Oh, I've got to compose myself before I can do this. <laughs> laughing too much. All right, yeah, so uh, thanks again for listening. listening, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get like a donut hold or something. You better remember to edit this out. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually going to have to mute myself. Yeah, I think it'd be much of me, actually. That's smarter. <laughs> someone else to do it, but if Martin's muting himself... We'll do, yes. right, well, good luck, Jamie. I'm a guest, I can't outro, that'd be weird. So yeah. it's YouTube, right? Jamie, I'm going to mute you, go for it, go. <laughs> right, so thanks again for listening, and uh, like, subscribe, tell your friends all about it, spread the word, and that is us signing off. There you go, that's good enough. Yeah, is that okay? <laughs>